Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 273, as 10th anniversary celebrants Graham McMillan and myself answer questions from Patreon, Twitter, and email, including whether The Walking Dead or this podcast have peaked, our picks for never-completed series to magically be completed, comic store pull lists, Silver Age Marvel Comics, the end of Mr. Miracle, our favorite new characters from the big two, and believe you me, much, much more in this three-hour wrap-up. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester? My God, what happened, man? I'm like, I, I've, right. I, look, I've said your name like three times. Dude. I don't know what was going on, if you had something <laughs> muted or what, but it what only came through at the end. Was, well, is, if you had heard them, and hopefully it's recorded this so you can't hear them when editing, I started really boldly, and then there's nothing, and then I got less bold. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Lester? I almost went, Graham McMillan? Like the recording has got the audio of all of them because that is hilarious. I really was like Jeff Lester, Jeff Lester, Jeff Lester. <laughs> I sadly I don't think so, but we'll have to see because uh, uh, I can only hope. And if not, what not? Technical problems have robbed you of what might be the greatest start to an episode that theoretically could have been. Theoretically, theoretically could have been. Saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Graham McMillan, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I I am good. I'm good. I'm uh sound convinced, which is always a start. <laughs> you know what it is? I'm I'm a little worried about the tremendous number of questions that we have to answer. We have a lot. We're gonna have to uh really like hit them and, and and run through, which is a shame because I did want to ask if you had a heat wave in San Francisco this week, the same way we had a heat wave in Portland. Uh Yes, the world was a nightmare on fire from Sunday through, eh, for us more, I mean, us being Edie and I, because the apartment didn't quite cool down, uh, through Wednesday, and it was nightmare. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday were basically around 100 degrees, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and every year, I forget what that actually feels like. Mm-hmm. And every year when it happens, because it happens like more than once a year, but like we were liable to get like around 100, just over 100. Right. And every single year, I am like, it'll be fine. Like it'll be warm, but that's okay. Right. And then it gets like when that's happening. And I'm just like, you know, why don't you just cut off my head and stick it in an ice bath? <laughs> like standing in front of the fridge, just be like, yes, take me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bad. It was. Uh, I, yeah, we had a whole we had a whole thing. It was, it was I I won't get into it because honestly we've got too many. Uh, exactly, we we really, yeah. really do have a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should, should we just jump in. Yes, I think so. I think so. Okay, John Kipling asks on Patreon uh, if the MCU makes a Fantastic Four movie, who does Doom team up with to defeat Reed Richards? Namor, Mallman, and Fing Fan Foom, Galactus, and if it is Fing Fan Fing Fing Fang Foom, should he wear athletic shorts? Answer in reverse order, yes. <laughs> Jeff, you agree with me on that, right? Oh. Athletic shorts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're, 
why would you not at this point? And also, you're going to have to do something to differentiate him from uh, Godzilla. So sure, yes, athletic shorts, 100%. Yeah. Um, I, I challenge the, the question. <laughs> why does Doom have to team up with anyone? Right, right. Uh, like, I, I, like I, I know that there's a lot of Fantastic Four movies where he does. Mm-hmm. But there's also – sorry, a lot of Fantastic Four comics that he does. But there's also a lot of Fantastic Four comics where he doesn't. Yes. So why would he have to have a movie? I don't get it. Yeah, well, um, it's, a, it's actually – it's actually – that's a good point. Uh, John Kipling, who may or may not be a pseudonym for a family member of mine, um, is <laughs> – I'm, I'm – Really? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean maybe yes, but yes. Uh, I, I – I, you know, is kind of funny. I'm sort of like, yeah, I th- on the one hand, Graham, I think you have a good point. On the other hand, it is sort of like, I don't know, Doom Doom is such a toughie uh, in the sense of um, trying to set up everything that he has. I mean, he if you do him right, of course, he's, fan- no pun intended, fantastic. But he also sort of strains credulity. So, I mean, you know, you could kind of have... The first one, it's just the FF, and it's Doom, and his Doom bots, and Latveria. It just, it all seems like a lot. That said, I was thinking of this, and I did realize that for me, the 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 thing that I think a lot of us is over, have overlooked is the first movie in the MCU traditionally has the hero fight essentially the mirror image of themselves you know it's like so i think actually there's something to be said for the first fantastic four movie having them fight some variant of the frightful four either led by doom instead of the wizard Mm -hmm. or doing a dry run where it's where it is, it's the frightful four, and they get to lay the groundwork for doing exactly at the, the end movie. of it. You know, yeah, there's a guy coming in an armor, being like, "Aha, mm-hmm. my minions couldn't do the job." You know, the Thanos thing. Yes, exactly. You know? Like I, I, I'd hired them to test the metal of of Reed Richards, but now I know that I'll have to step in. Type, type. With my metal, right? Think, That's where I, you're going I, with. Honestly. As, yeah, as soon as I got to test the metal, I literally was like, "I'm not going to do that pun. I'm not going to go there." <laughs> and yet you did. Yeah, I did. So, I did. So, it makes up for yeah. all the times where you totally went that way. Uh, it's true. It, it, it is an unusual uh, restraint for me in yes. not going there. Yes. Um, also, everyone, if you check out the show notes, I'll make it a point to include the uh, YouTube clip that John Kipling uh, threw in there which is a very awesome uh, excerpt from the Tick animated series. So uh, worth, I think the Tick versus Dinosaur Neil maybe, but it's great. So um, John, hopefully that'll uh, answer your question sufficiently. If not, I know that you will, you'll give me some crap at a, at a family gathering. So, But you do make exceedingly good cakes. That's a joke that only people in the UK will get. You're welcome. Wow. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. I go. Let's move on. Yes. What's great is people who listen to the UK will get that joke, right? Which is, which makes me oddly happy. Yes, me too, Graham. Except, except <laughs> the opposite of that. Al it, Kennedy. Al Kennedy, leave something in the comments just to prove that you got the joke, please. <laughs> Ed from Patreon. 
uh, asked the following questions. First, Zenoscope and Aspen Comics seem to be popular, at least on Comixology. Do you have any sense who the audience for these are? To me, they seem like porn comics minus the porn. Am I missing something? I'm really tempted to say, no, you're not. Right. To be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. Um... I let's see. Have I? I don't see. Here's the thing. I think I'm being unfair. I think I've read literally one Zenoscope comic and maybe a handful of Aspen. Right. Um, Aspen has honestly seemed less like porn minus porn as much as Michael Turner fetish. Mm. Comic, oh yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like like, and by that I mean people who have a fetish for the art of Michael Turner. Right. Yes, very specifically, which is yeah, interesting since very, Michael very Turner's pre- stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but a very particular art style. Do you know what I mean? And, yes. and it feels very focused around one guy's vision. Yeah. Um, but they seem – I mean they're, they're for like a very particular – they are. They're very particularly niche. They're for a very particular audience. Mm-hmm. And I am not in that audience, so I honestly can't see the appeal of it. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but for myself, who certainly spends a certain amount of... I tend to prefer my porn comics with porn, so that kind of throws me off <clears throat> in terms of the appreciation. But, I, you know, at least from flipping through some of the Zenscape stuff very loosely and <clears throat> the Aspen comic stuff, it does feel like there is a strange zone that the rest of us miss for cheesecake artists um and cheesecake comics where it's some whether it's like you know imprinting people from conservative counties who couldn't get a hold of porn which in this day and age of the internet seems to make very little sense but maybe people feel that way about porn comics as well um You know, and seeing actually some of the people who used to write into uh, Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose. Well, that's just it. Like, it it is very familiar, Mm -hmm. like, very similar to Tarot, you know? Yeah. And 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 I've I've never seen the appeal of that either. And yet, like, that's that's enough of a niche to have been, you know, moderately to relatively successful for more than a decade. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I said, flipping through the letters, (coughs) how do I put it? I feel like there is a there is a niche market of people who find like it there's there's this weird like women being strong but in a way that is specifically defined by their sexuality. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 um it's you know female empowerment as long as the women are also objectified. Yeah, and there's something like. I, it, but I I want to say also to what Tarot does on Zenoscope as well, horror is very important to that as well. Yeah. Yep. Like there's there's something about like the 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 you know the Venn diagram mm-hmm. of of those different things. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and where all of them cross over, where like you know, uh, objectification of women. Female empowerment, horror crossover. Like there's those comic comedies exist in there, you know. Yeah, which which does make sense since so many horror movies have um, that that sort of weird mix of female empowerment slash objectification 
you know, the the final girl of slasher films, you know, is very much a – horror had a very stronger um, eye for creating um, powerful women while at the same time sort of both objectifying them and subjecting them to some really uh, terrible stuff and arguably some incredibly – depending on the type of movie, some incredibly misogynistic stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. And – you know, I think the closest that I can think of it is just, and this is going to say, hopefully this will, I'm sure this will sound patronizing, but I don't mean it as patronizingly as it sounds. Some people are born without a sense of smell, you know, and consequently. I'm really curious where this is going, but okay. Well, I'm just saying that consequently, you, you know, that there might be some equivalent of color blindness or inability to smell where stuff that just sort of strikes us at strikes other people as either objectionable or very heavily objectified just doesn't hit the people who like that material that way at all. Like they just don't see it. Or, or... Or uh, and this is maybe me being as, as you know overly harsh or overly snobbish. Like, aren't they just don't care? Well, like that's I, yeah, there's some not that a too. concern for that, right. you know? Right. I was I thought you were going to go the opposite way. I thought you were going to say that, that you know there are people for whom the combination of those things is particularly exciting, mm-hmm. you know, sexy or otherwise. Right. And and like we are just in a subset of people who don't get that, who like just can't see it. Yeah, and I th- I think there's something to that as well. I mean, I, I I just how widespread that is. I I really don't know. I pers- I mean, there is a lot of uh, how do I put it? Um, you know, speaking anecdotally, you there are people that come into comic book stores when I worked retail that did not have what I would call a wide range of human interaction, I guess. Like, you know, it was like retail people, their family members, and maybe that's it. And then a lot of it was heavily, heavily these fictionalized narratives. So yeah, by all means that, you know, they, it's so, I feel like just so incredibly patronizing. I apologize. Cause I feel like I'm just like, yeah, I mean, you know, people who are lacking some, some crucial common sense or people who don't have actual, you know, social relationships, but there, but there are people who just do not, uh, may not like this works. It works for them. And I think that it probably works for enough different niche types that it manages to, um, like you know, sustain those imprints and those sales. And uh, you know, I, I gotta say, there there is some level of, of crossing fifty where I'm like, I'm just so acutely aware of the glass house that I live in that I can't really think to cast any kind of stone, you know. It's like well, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure the question wants us to cast stones. No, as I much think as so just too. like wh- why? What's the appeal? Like, who, who yeah, wants why? Them? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, who is the audience for this? I honestly don't know. I think that you probably put as much of a finger on it as as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at the same time, kind of God bless them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. like if they're if they're doing, I will say this: Xenoscope is always 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 at san diego one of the busiest booths yeah 
it's a small booth, don't get me wrong, but yeah. it's always packed. Yes, yeah, like, I think so too. One hundred percent. And yep. so that's that's I maybe Aspen is as well. I I honestly couldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. But I like Xenoscope. I might be misremembering. I want to say it's always beside or behind two thousand AD for some reason, <laughs> which is why I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah, seconds from Ed. Yes, uh, I, I am going to read this because I honestly think this is a you question. Right. Um, I've tried to get into manga a few times, but the only series that ever worked for me was Lone Wolf and Cub. I love the art style. The story was compelling. The action was clear, and it didn't have much of the tropes that I associate with the manga that I don't like: panty shots, high school chibi characters, the little visual shorthands, vampire teeth speed of sweat etc do you have any manga recommendations that might work for me uh yeah uh i was thinking it's mm -hmm. i was gonna say like it's really like that i i find this an incredibly broad question Mm -hmm. because he only says the one thing that he likes and then here are the tropes i don't like but the tropes that i don't like you know pants shots high school chibi characters visual little visual shorthands i've not read a lot of manga and i've avoided all of those Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, uh, it's um... maybe, maybe it's but you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. I I don't think I've read like chibi characters or high school or panty or manga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, you know, like yeah. Vinland Saga didn't have anything like yeah. that. Like planets didn't have anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, did Pluto? I, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't think so. No, uh, you know, um, I... Pluto would be my recommendation because I fucking love Pluto. Right. Uh, right. So I think, I think that, uh, Graham actually came up with a ton of great answers that, that, um, probably stronger than what I thought it, I might come up with is, yeah, you, uh, definitely add, check out, uh, Urasawa's work from, um, you know, Viz's, uh, whatever they're calling their adult imprint, but like, um, Pluto, uh, 20th century boys, uh, monster might really appeal to you. Uh, I feel like dark horse, which published lone wolf and cub went to great lengths to kind of grab more of that. Kazuo Koike, uh, and I forget the name of the artist who collaborates with him on lone wolf and cub. They go on to do, uh, samurai executioner, uh, for multiple volumes, uh, there's Lady Snowblood. Like, there's more in that historical, <clears throat> that very specific style of outrageously historical, bloody action. Uh, I'm a mm. big fan of Steaming Sniper, if you're into reading digitally, which I've only managed to find on Comixology, I think through Media Do, um, and which is very is is definitely an adult narrative there's not actually a lot of action in there so it's much more about um uh uh, how do i put it like adult relationships like there's there's a variety of stuff like uh, i i love go go 13 a lot of people have thought that the reason why go go has never hit it big here in um America and even still sort of remains kind of a niche, um, large but niche kind of uh, character in uh, Japan is that uh, Takeo Saito's uh, figure work is just so damn stiff. Like his characters look like kind of cartoony but inexpressive at the same time. So definitely not for everyone, I think, in, in that sense. But uh, honestly, I'd try try Viz's adult 
uh, imprint with the Urasawa stuff, which is wonderful. Look into some of the other stuff that Lone Wolf and Cub has. Uh, some people are very into uh, Blade of the Immortal and Berserk. So I, I sort of feel like Dark Horse knows what it likes. Um, you, of course, also mentioned Planets, which was uh, which is pretty great. Um, and, of course, I adore the work from the same creator uh, that came afterwards that I'm completely blocking on, but it's out there. The trick I think Ed, like me is that is you're having some frustration is the majority of the work that tends to get reprinted over here, at least at a casual glance because Viz and Viz's Shonen market is such a huge chunk of the marketplace. You kind of have to work hard to move past the shonen stuff which is built for you know essentially you know boys to older teenage boys and once you move past that there's actually a ton of stuff that is still sort of basically like shonen stuff but with swears and more sex you know something like sunken rock that um which i quite like but like crunchyroll has some really interesting manga and kodansha has some stuff that you should look into i feel like joanna draper carlson is a great uh resource with her comics worth reading um it's so common for me to find a series that i like and be excited for it and when i look at reviews on the internet it turns out that joanna reviewed them like you know like three years earlier yeah 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 months and months and months ago um uh, so, so hopefully that'll get you, that'll get you looking. And if you have more questions, like come back and ask us and maybe we can, uh, we can narrow it down a little bit for you. I'm going to wrap this up by saying that planets was uh, made by, um, Makoto Yukimura, mm -hmm. who apparently is the same person behind Vinland Saga. Ah, that's I, I, why. I literally, literally, yes. literally had no idea. Literally, yeah. I'm Vinland Saga. We have talked about on this podcast yes. at length because it was the thing I tried because Jeff recommended it. Yeah. Steve Lacey asked via email. I'll keep this brief as I'm on a phone at nearly 2 a.m. under the influence of some very enjoyable birthday celebrations. I love that that is his start. Yes. I love and happy belated birthday, Steve Lacey. Uh, I've never relied on autocorrect so much, he said. As fellow travelers on the Fantastic Four journey, I'm keen, keen to hear your thoughts on the 10 or so issues of the relaunch Fantastic Four so far. Are they any good? Where do they fit in the general FF rankings? And how do they compare to Slot's other works? Jeffrey, uh, you have you read them? I read the first issue, and I want to say maybe the second hit Marvel Unlimited, and I read it and completely forgot about it, or else it hit it hit Marvel Unlimited, and I didn't read it. I'm going to jump online yeah, and see I, what I, they have. I want to say that maybe the first four issues are up on Marvel Unlimited now. Yeah, that would make sense. So um, I will say I think they're fine. I've I've talked about them before in the podcast. They are. Um, they're very dance log comics, which is, I don't know if, that, if that's damning with fame praise or not. I feel that Dan Slot has a very particular idea of what these comics should be like. Mm -hmm. And that's true about his Spider-Man. It's very true about his Iron Man. And, and he, it's like, he's weirdly John Byrne-esque. Hmm. In that I feel he's very beholden to like the characters should be like when I was growing up hmm. or when I was reading them, but I'm going to make a nod towards modernizing them or doing something, you know, quote unquote unexpected. 
but it's never truly unexpected. It's a very conservative idea of of updating or making contemporary or unexpected. Mm. It it's it's a very safe version, right? Uh, because honestly, it's it, this is especially true of Spider Man. He likes the character so much mm-hmm. that he can't do anything to them. Mm. Like if he does anything nasty. There's a get out clause built in very, very clearly. Mm. Well, you that know? might be why Superior Spider-Man worked so well was, you know, of course, it was no longer Peter Parker. It was yeah. Otto Octavius, and therefore he had a whole different arc to do that that was, I, you know, uh, uh, so my thing is, is having read the first issue of Slot's Fantastic Four and therefore being in the absolute worst position to to actually give anything knowledgeable about the rest of the issues i will say i got a very strong uh mark wade mike ringo vibe off of it um in that it felt like it was that that the sort of heartwarming family shenanigans that Wade and Ringo put at the front of it where it's sort of comic, but, um, you know, and a little bit of heartwarming. Like there's a, there's a scene, like a flashback sequence that has them being where like Johnny sings his way back to the planet earth after they're lost in space or something like that. And, and that sort of stuff like that just deeply kind of annoyed me. So if that's your cup of tea, and I think, honestly, I think for some people, what they want from the Fantastic Four is a sense of, of I don't know how to put it, like the, not like a comic book sitcom in the way that Bill Jemis thought that the FF should be, but a little bit in the sense of the everyone hugs at the end kind of feeling um sure sure yeah and yeah. and i and part of me is like in a way that's fine and and in a way it sort of i i just i'm not it as you can tell i'm not strongly interested in it i i will say this sarah pacelli draws the first like two and a half issues mm-hmm. um and her work was better than the writing if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Aaron Cooter comes on with maybe issue five or six. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes on for like, you know, the big Doctor Doom arc. Uh, which, oh, I should say the big Doctor Doom arc is um, if you have been reading Fantastic Four for a long time, mm-hmm. kind of staggeringly familiar. Mm. It's one of those things where it's positioned as like, you've never seen a story as big as this. Right. And the first thing you think is like, oh, sure I have, like three or four times. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but Aaron Cooter's art weirdly works better with slots while also seeming making the entire book seem weirdly less Fantastic Four to me. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, which, which is a very, very strange thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, Cooter's, are, Cooter's a very particular artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's got a lot of strengths. Mm-hmm. I think that he – how to say this? I think that he is is straddling this weird line where I feel that someone who likes uh, Jeff Darrow or Seth uh, – God, I've forgotten Seth's last name. Oh, the big in uh, Japan. Seth Fisher. Seth, Seth Fisher, Seth Fisher yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who likes their work 
could find something they like about it hmm. while simultaneously being mainstream enough mm-hmm. that people who like like um burn or especially Joe Staten, I get a really strong Joe Staten vibe from his work. Um could also like pick on up on it. Mm-hmm. Um so in a weird way part of me is like, sure, like check out the later issues, uh which are arguably better comics mm-hmm. but they're also arguably worse Fantastic Four comics. Hmm. So I don't know. Uh, Steve also goes on to say, in addition, what are your thoughts on the upcoming spin-off books, Invisible Woman, Future Foundation, and Yancey Street? Do the premises and creatives excite you enough or are Marvel oversaturating a limited market? Yes. <laughs> yes to both or yes to uh, the uh, Yes to the last part. one. The Marvel yeah. is oversaturating a limited market. Yes. The idea that we're actually going to have like three monthly FF books and a quarterly book it's literally the fucking 1990s again. Yeah. Like, how how is that happening? Mm-hmm. That's insane to me. And sure, I'm pretty sure that Invisible Woman is only a mini. But even so, mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? And also, Invisible Woman is the, like, we had the pilot for this series, like, three years ago. Because it's, it's, uh, it's Mark Wade writing an Invisible Woman mini mm-hmm. based on, like, his one-off S.H.I.E.L.D. issue starring the Invisible Woman. Hmm. And it's like, that didn't set the world on fire. Right. Why did they all of a sudden greenlight a series years later based on exactly the same premise? Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's super weird to me. It's super weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Marvel. I, Marvel's oversaturating the limited market. I, I just don't see why. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's that's not true. I totally see why. Money. I don't see any creative argument for these books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just I'll I'll just co-sign with that, um, and also wish you a happy birthday, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for writing in. And uh, people who love the Fantastic Four, Steve Lacey, of course, does the Fantastic Cast, uh, which is a uh, pretty excellent deep deep dive. Oh, uh, great! Like yeah. for people who listen to Box Building, I wish that you know we were better at our jobs. Yes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, John Q. from email asks, in light of the Drock episodes, do either of you have any thoughts on the Martial Law comic? Good question. Uh, it exists. <laughs> I, 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 yes. I wish I did. Martial Law's always left me cold. So, Jeff, on you go. I actually liked Martial Law when it first came out. Uh, it's Kevin O'Neill and Pat Mills. Uh, and I would like to revisit it because... Uh, I didn't think of this until you asked this, John, but speaking of, you know, since in the Drock episodes, we sort of talked about the difference between um, Pat Mills's dread and uh, Wagner's dread. I feel that it's, um, I, I realize now that there's stuff that's going on with the, with martial law that makes, how do I put it? more sense for Pat Mills. Like, Pat Mills is, like, I'd like to revisit it and be like, oh, he's taking some of the stuff that, um, he, you know, either he felt about Dread but couldn't really get into the book, which is to say, as I recall, there's some sort of subplot with his girlfriend and things. It's it's Pat, Pat Mills clearly wanted to do much more of a Marvel comic with Dread, at least in those early years. And so seeing him at do a, uh, do one 
a version of that at Epic and be able to sort of, because Mills has a lot less nuance. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, well, I mean, martial law is an astonishingly unsubtle book. Yeah, exactly. And that is that is literally part of its charm. So, oh, yeah, yeah, very yeah. much. Like, you don't go into, or if you do go into martial law thinking, I would like a subtle, you know, dystopian mm-hmm. superhero book, you will be disabused of that notion within, like, two pages. Yeah. Yeah, so Mills is actually able, which I think is kind of interesting, is his inability to sort of walk a political fine line uh, translates in Marvel martial law to just superheroes are total shit, and they represent everything that's crappy about human nature, and here's a fucked up anti-hero that has to take him out, and it the thing that's pretty interesting about martial law is it is a i have a stronger idea of it in terms of the very weirdo kind of semi grim and gritty stuff that was coming out in the mid 80s that was also semi uh parodic uh you know a semi parody sort of the same way that electra assassin uh by miller and sinkevich also similarly tries to sort of have his cake and snicker at it too, you know? So I, I would, I would actually like to revisit it, especially I think once I've got another year or two of dread under my belt and get a sense really of um, uh, how much more Mills might be trying to, um, how much how much more of it is is his reaction or some of his buried ideas or buried contempt even for dread that he just takes out on on martial law i'm going to before we move on say there are two comics that i do want to visit slash revisit in mm-hmm. light of draw especially as we go on uh one is the last american Mm. The Wagner Grant Mike McMahon epic comic yes. from around about the same time as Martial Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and two is Pat Mills Punisher twenty ninety nine. I like. I'm really curious about Punisher twenty ninety nine because I feel that that actually more than Martial Law might be his attempt to do Dread. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't even know if they are Marvel Unlimited, but I should look. Like, because I, I, I think that that would be something that would be fun to to revisit right. and also i forgot that you know i love marvel age jeff um uh, i forgot that mills did so much 2099 because he also took over ravage 2099 from mm-hmm. stanley mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of wacky to me that in the 90s pat mills is basically writing half of the 2099 line for a mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah that is pretty wild isn't it so i would i would like to revisit those especially because I still have a very strong appreciation for Mills based on not so much dread, but like a huge chunk of his other work. Um, oh, you you're you're a big Mills fan from from 2080. Yeah, like Nemesis, you love. Yes, absolutely, very very much so. So yeah, I w- I would like to revisit a lot of that stuff and see what he can do, especially because seeing his weird, um. Uh, you know, Mills talks a good game about a lot of stuff, but he either really was into um, Marvel comics back in the 70s or, you know, he definitely would try to pass it off as, yeah, I thought they would sell 
And so we were trying to, you know, kind of rip them off. But, you know, there's there's something there. It'd be very interesting to see how he um, knowing that how he tackles the 2099 stuff. So. Yep. Jonathan Sapsid mm-hmm. on email asks, and this is this is multi-part, Jeff. So just jump in when you're ready, okay? Got it. My question, my question is about creators peaking in their careers. People say Chris Claremont peaked with the 1980s X-Men run, or Bendis with Daredevil or Ultimate Spider-Man. But do creators really peak, or is that everybody just gets used to their style? People are saying Bendis, Bendis is peaking again after really getting ill and going to DC. What about artists? Well, Simonson's current Ragnarok seems as accomplished as his classic Thor. Bill Zinkevich is still innovating. I've heard Steve Root say he peaked with Nexus 14. Is it that specific usually? Does anybody peak late in comics? I I think that last question is actually a great one. Does anybody peak late in comics? Like, you know... Toth! Like, Alex Toth, I think, just really got better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, I would argue that Simonson might be getting better. Slower, his output is getting like far, far, far uh, more infrequent. Right. But something like it, it's heresy, but something like his Orion run mm-hmm. is better than his Star run for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, his Ragnarok is great. Mm-hmm. I really, really like his Ragnarok series for IDW. Hmm. Um, so I think creators do. Uh, I, I guess first of all, it depends. What do you mean by peak, creatively or sales wise? I can't think of creators who peak sales-wise late in, in their careers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, of course, we are ignoring the American uh, god of peaking late in comics, Jack Kirby. Stan Lee. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stan Lee, very late when, yeah, when <clears throat> he's like 38 when he scripts his first issue of Fantastic Four. But of yeah, course, you're right. Kirby as well was in his 50s. Yeah, I think that's correct. Or, or certainly mid-40s, but then he is in his 50s by the time he is... He's doing new gods and everything, yeah. Yeah, so and he and he kind of keeps going from there. So uh, you know, I I think I think that there he he is definitely the the urtext. But yeah, I, I think there are guys that you would say. I mean, I don't know. I, of course, Joe Kubert is an artist, is uh, an artist who I I really adore, and his work got so. I mean, you know, he was drawing comics back in the forties. Yeah, uh, and his work just continues to evolve. Here's a, a strange choice, Sal Buscema. I think Sal Buscema's later stuff is much better than his earlier stuff. Huh, you mean his, like, late 80s, or, uh, mid-90s stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. Huh. I think there was a point where Sal Buscema started inking himself. And I, I, I've heard, this is second or third times, but mm-hmm. I've heard someone once say that basically what happened was he worked on Simonson's Thor, and he looked at Simonson's inking on Thor, uh-huh. And was like, oh, oh, I can do that. Mm, mm. And then when you look at some of the stuff that he did, like in the late eighties, early nineties, his inks were just—I mean, spectacular. He he did no pun because he was doing spectacular Spider-Man. Yes, but like he he when he was inking himself, his work was just amazing. I mean, yeah. really, genuinely great. Right. Uh, that was like really relatively late in his career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. We look at guys like, uh, I mean, it depends on what you say, but a lot of people would say that Greg Capullo is at the top of his game now, and he's been working for an incredibly long time. He's got yeah, exactly. At, he, he's got to be three decades into his career by this point. Yeah, exactly. And and his work, I think, is exceptional. So yeah, I think I think that the idea of peaking is. 
Um, you know, I was I was originally going to pshaw this, but I I do think that there is something to say about the idea that either we get used to it, or sometimes there's a lot of comic creators that you completely ignore, and when they hit, you're like, oh my god, they're a new creator to you, but of course they've been, you know, paying their dues for like 10, yeah, 15, yeah. 20 years, so yeah. And I, I, re I really think that there's a connection when we're talking about Peking with, uh, like, the amount of tension they get. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like the the whether the books are hit or whether they're getting a lot of critical attention, right? So it's it's a it's a it's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, it, there sorry, are certain. I was, was going to say there are creators that I that I don't enjoy as much as I used to, and I feel like have lost some nuance. And I would say oh sure, like like you beat. know I I I'd say like you know Morrison fits into that run. Mm, interesting, really. Yeah. I, I I really uh, honestly for me I think Morrison peaked when he was doing JLA and Invisibles. Hmm. Wow. And he's some done some great stuff since then. Uh huh. You know, All Star Superman's uh, after that. We Three's after that. Mm hmm. Um, Multiverses after that. Mm hmm. But I I do think that his peak is like that end of the 20th century. Mm hmm. Like I, and again that might just be my personal preference. Mm -hmm. But there's something there that I think that like he was he was on fire in a way that he's not quite managed since then. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. Is it the same with podcasts? Jonathan asks, when will wait, what peak? Um, and I think we peaked with the second episode of Drock. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm half joking. But I thought that was a really good episode. I thought that was a great episode too. Uh, you know, honestly, that what I think is interesting for me, Graham is I feel uh, maybe that we too have become a little Morrison esque in that I feel like there, um, we're, we, cr I think we probably crank out better episodes, um, more, you know, sort of with more frequency. But I think for myself, I sometimes feel like we run a little more hot and cold. Like I feel for myself, like we peaked. Back when there was, I think there was a period where I felt like we, maybe, and maybe it's just me, where I felt like I was working really hard at trying to talk about my personal um, interactions, my personal history with comics, I guess, in a way that left a lot of uh, investment for me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and for myself, I feel like telling you about selling my comic book collection was kind of maybe my personal peak for that range of me and myself and, you know, personally. Um, so, so in, in a way I kind of feel like we've sort of feel like we've peaked, but happy 10th anniversary, everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, I, I say that, but I actually think our, I think our first year of Baxter building was incredibly strong. I think, like you said, the first few episodes of Drock have, I think have been really good stuff. So, you know, and every once in a while we get into something where you and I are intensely arguing over something. And I think that it's, a. Uh, I think I think it's a, I think it's actually a great listening experience. So, 
Jonathan's last question is when Jeff talks about formalism usually with Alan Moore or Tom King, what does he mean exactly? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, I thought about the best way to sum this up uh, and keep it quick. So, and, and since we've got so many questions, hopefully I will, will keep it super quick. But I would say my shorthand is, is that Moore and King, when I say they work in a formalist manner, it's very much a they sit down and plan out the effect that they want and go about specifically trying to create that effect and that there is a lot that the that the joy that the reader feels is more a joy of seeing how the joints of the work come together Whereas I would say, at least in my experience from from doing this for so long with Graham, that is as opposed to uh, a work where that is quote unquote messier, but tends to um, be where the the joy tends to be more about the uncovering or exploration of an emotion. Yeah. Regardless of necessarily how well that read dovetails in with the work. In other words, the the joint the the joining of the joints isn't isn't as important to the effect cumulative effect of the piece. I am not Jeff, but I will say that uh, formalism for me means the technical aspects of the comic, mm-hmm. as opposed to the way the story is told, as opposed to the story being told. Mm-hmm. Um, how you do it the the construction of the comic as opposed to the the actual like you said emotional impact of the comic mm-hmm. or or the the honestly the enjoyment i i feel that formalism is something that you can respect or appreciate but i'm not sure it's necessarily something you can enjoy well i it's i don't know if it's something that you enjoy but i would like to think oh no sure yeah it. yeah i enjoy it so yeah i okay Sure. I guess what I was saying is, like, for me, I think that almost comes down to appreciation as much of an, as enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it is so intellectual as opposed to uh, emotional. Right. Like, you know, I can't imagine even you, who is very formalist mm-hmm. and, and enjoys formal play significantly, mm-hmm. I can't imagine you see, like, you know, a three-page sequence that is technically perfect and you get, like, you know, fist-bumping the air excited. You know, I, I think it's something where, like, you recognize it and you appreciate it and you you admire it, but I don't think you necessarily get excited by it. But again, I, I'm totally maybe projecting. For all I know, like, you're literally like, oh my god, I can't believe! Oh, look at that page turn! Oh my god! Yeah, I would I would have to say that you and I are still <laughs> underestimating still very, each other all these happy. years. Yeah, yeah, because I think I am much closer to that. So. That's- you know what? That makes me happy. <laughs> it really does. It really Good. makes me happy. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, okay. Uh, Eric Roop. Um, has Jeff read enough sports manga to have an opinion on them as part of the action genre? Haiku in particular seems to work really well as an action story only instead of fights and chases. It has volleyball matches. It's not something you see a lot of in U.S. media, TV, comics, or otherwise, and was wondering if Jeff has had similar thoughts. I have not read enough sports manga. I have to say, uh, sorry, I thumped my microphone. I I have always wanted to read Slam Dunk, which everyone has talked about as an exceptional sports manga. I'm really into haiku, and I think that I think you're absolutely right, Eric, that it's 
part of what's great about it is the way they pace it out so that the the battles are very much um are 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 incredibly action oriented and they go to great lengths to usually set it up so that um the opponent that you're presenting has represents a, a very different philosophical mindset or you know might quote unquote be a bad guy or not uh yeah i i really like it i really like haiku tremendously but i don't i haven't actually read enough sports manga and i'm not sure like i liked cross manage which uh was apparently a huge failure relatively in that it got like maybe 40 chapters in before the plug got pulled on it um so it's it's you know fortunately it was serialized in shonen jump uh alpha from the beginning um and i really liked it a lot but arguably as it went on and became more and more a sports comic the less i was interested in it whereas like haiku is very much a sports comic in that traditional sense but since it was that way from the start i had that i had that buy-in so uh what eric also asks what is the most you'd be willing to spend on a comic because of nostalgia and nothing else this is where i think our answers will be very different graham uh the most ten dollars and for me i think i would probably go as high as 20 maybe it really depends I, on when i say ten dollars like it's really unlikely like yeah. it would have to be the exact printing of a particular comic mm. Mm. you know me like i i am yeah. i am dollar bin like i i the idea that i would spend even ten dollars on one comic right is is incredibly unusual the one the reason i'm I'm saying ten dollars is i will spend more if i have like uh you know the entire run of a comic except for one issue mm, right and then like it's it's not purely because of nostalgia it's literally nostalgia and like a completest tendency mm-hmm. like i'll go over the you know realistically two dollar maximum that it would be otherwise right i think i think for me because i have a hoarder tendencies um i'm i'm bad with money uh i think that the trick the secret sauce to hook me eric is i'd be willing i'm more willing to spend i'm willing to spend more money on comics as the unit goes up so for example i was bidding on ebay and paying as much as like i think 90 dollars for those gte core uh dvds that would have the entire run yeah i know right like on the other hand a few of them i got for 50 which was great and in my head i was like oh and i'll be able to resell these for the same amount which was which was not the case uh so because then marvel unlimited came about and you're like well these are these are worthless you know but they're not which is great i mean i yeah because marvel limited could fuck off at any moment or not doesn't have all the issues that's true or something like the star trek one for example has a lot of stuff that you just can't get anywhere else well yeah and the star the star trek one was ten dollars i mean don't get me wrong it's the it's the six five hundred six hundred issues of spider-man or the avengers or whatever or the hulk for example that um 
you know, also, Graham, as you know, they include the ads and the letter pages and a whole bunch of it's it's a little closer to having a full nostalgic experience since they literally just scanned the entire comic book soup to nuts and, and put it in yeah. a PDF format. Um, I really don't regret any of those purchases, even though I'm aware that, yeah, Marvel Unlimited really, um, you know, covered almost all of those. And in some cases, like something like X-Men, which only did Uncanny X-Men, as the 90s goes on, it fragments horrifically and you get less yeah. and less of an ability to read a complete storyline. Uh, so, but my point being like, that was a ridiculous amount of money, but in my head, I was able to justify it by like, well, the number of issues that I'm getting it, you know, it starts going more and more and more. So it's very easy to hook me on if someone were to turn around and be like, hey, for, you know, $60, you can get the 2001 Kirby omnibus that's got the movie adaptation and all 10, you know, 10 issues or 12 issues of, of the comic. I'd be I'd be like, oh, yeah, you can probably lure me in for that. Whereas I don't know if I would pay $20 for like the 2001 Treasury Edition. I just. Yeah, exactly. But again, you know, if it was a collection. Right. I like, especially if something like Kirby's 2001. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see myself paying a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it is, you know, I, I, I'm answering this based on comic. Like, yeah. I, I wouldn't have paid more money for a collection. I remember buying the... Do you remember in, like, 99, uh, maybe 98? Mm -hmm. DC Crisis and Infinite Earths out for the first time as a hardcover? Yes. Mm -hmm. as, I, I bought that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I wanted to read the fucker. And because... <laughs> like, I, I really was. I was like, you know, this will be great. It'll be hardcover. I, I, I'm totally there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I, hopefully that answers it. Uh, does the direct market inherently limit the possible success of certain types of genre material? Why the seeming lack of successful non-superhero based comedy, romance, slice of life, sports, or similar types of comics in the traditional 20-ish page floppy format? I am not sure the direct market inherently limits the success as much as the people who shop in the direct market currently limit that success. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like the retail framework is not inherently limiting of any genre, mm -hmm. but the market that it has built as like throughout the decades is resistant to other genres. Uh, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think that generally the marketplace is it's it's a tough nut to crack. And I think there are a number of factors because because the market at every stage from publisher to retailer uh, essentially rewards conservatism. Um, uh, it's certainly of thought. Uh, but when you're buying something on a non-returnable basis, like there's a number of factors that make you can make you leery about a certain number of orders or non-orders and similarly for publishers you know the where you are working with very small uh margins of profit 
you can really risk taking a huge bath on a failure, as can retailers. So therefore, they don't order as much or they tend to order the things that they know. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they order what they know is going to sell. Yeah. Um, but again, that to me speaks to the customer base more than the mechanism of the direct market. Well, so I'm right. I'm splitting the difference. Right. I am like really splitting the difference. I, I and I guess what I would just say is like I would think that for example, if let's say Brian Vaughn, maybe Brian's not the best example right now, but take 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 a take a comic book creator who's relatively popular announced that they were going to do a. A romance comic, you know, that was um, going to be published monthly, um, eight times a year, <coughs> with uh, art by a great artist, and that they had already committed the funds so that it was going to be at least 30 issues. Like, I would think that retailers would, at that point, retailers are like, if it's good, I will start hand selling it. Because I do think that there is a lot to be said for. The best comic stores, really good material, what they want to do is have good material that they can count on being there, you know. Ultimately, a book that is fabulous, that doesn't ship or isn't on a regular basis, makes it really hard to sell. And the way the market is is really set up, um, you just don't... There's been there's been slice of life comics ever since the underground com you know comics uh, field uh, and used to be very much fanographics bread and butter but mm-hmm. that that stuff is as it got harder and harder for the artists to to produce like monthly books once it became a you'll get the next copy of eight ball when you get it like it's a lot of comic stores were kind of like. I can't, why would I waste my time trying to, and time, why should I, why put all this effort trying to hand sell a book that is only going to pay off like once a year? I need to find books that I can sell 12 times a year. And again, it's, you're like, you as it's, I'm not denying at that point, you've got a lot of people who are walking in who are picking up superhero comics, you know, but you can, you can expand and change palettes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very much this is both the right and wrong creator to say this. But if Robert Kirkman decided that he was going to launch a romance comic, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I have literally zero desire to read a Robert Kirkman romance comic. And right. also I think it would be bad. Mm-hmm. But I also trust if Kirkman is doing something yeah. that he is going to let it run for a while. Yes. And also that he is enough of a name that I can see retailers supporting it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how much that pays off? I mean, we need only look at something like Oblivion Song or something like that. But, you know, it's it's I I would also start getting into the realms of talking about the idea of being able to do a romance comic, being able to do comedy comics like manga is able to do that because the books are run in anthologies, big, big anthologies. So people get huge chunks of story um, for not a lot, and then you can have a cumulative effect. But I don't think it's a surprise that it's the comics that are, like even as we start to move beyond superhero comics, the comics that are stronger traditionally in continued serial genre things, like you can have science fiction 
uh, novels with reoccurring characters. You can have mystery novels with reoccurring characters. Uh, it can be a, a lot harder to do a comedy or a romance with a reoccurring character. And a char- characters are, for genre, uh, you know, character plus genre equals a, a reoccurring hook of something that you can sell multiple times a month. Even horror, as we've talked about at least a little bit here. So. Yeah, I, yeah. The one thing I'd say in in, uh, in connection to that is, you know, we're talking about this, and literally, I'm like, oh, sex criminals. I think sex criminals is yeah. like a, a, a good argument that it, like, if you basically if you make it, people will come. Yeah, if, look at that. If you're enough mm-hmm. of a name, again, sex criminals. I'm talking about books that literally is maybe put like three issues out in the last year. Yeah. Um, right. But but for the first year or so, yeah, for the first year or so, it was coming out monthly, and and people responded to it. But again, you had Fraction's name, and to a lesser extent, Zdarsky's. But like Fraction was really hot at the time, Mm -hmm. and he did this, you know, a sex comedy book, Mm -hmm. and and people like it was a hit. It wasn't just like you know, oh, that's pretty good. It was a hit. It was a hit. Yeah, exactly. So I, I I think I really think that you can do it mm-hmm. i don't think there, i don't think there's anything inherently limiting in the direct market yeah uh because you've seen successes also i think the walking dead honestly is mm-hmm. an argument that, that you can do this yes i think so um, as well so yeah i don't think there is anything inherently limiting in the direct market I, apart from honestly the the inherent conservative nature of the direct market I think, but the, I think I think if, if creators and publishers wanted to make it happen, they could make it happen. Yeah, I mean, cons- yes, and I think that that's also very crucial because I think that there's a lot to be said for part of what helped Walking Dead was there was a commitment to shipping regularly. I feel that once Kirkman pack, picked up Charlie Adlard, who's like one of the faster con- artists exactly. in the comics yeah, industry. Adler's going to put an issue out every month, no matter what. Yeah. Like, I, you know, feeling Adler could literally like lose his arm and he would still find a way to turn an issue out. Absolutely. And I, and I, I cannot, I think that that is such a huge, huge chunk of what helps with walking dead is again, there's a lot of commitment. If, if sex criminals had shipped month in and month out, uh, uh, you know, for these past couple of years, I think I think it would have sold, v- you know, very high. When we look at the success, I so. yeah, I think so. I don't think it would have lost its heat at all. I think it could have continued to go up. In fact, so so, but that requires a lot of commitment, a lot of discipline, and a lot of um, fiscal fearlessness that that not is is not very easy to find. It's just yeah, it's just not present. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, when people often talk about the current state of the drag market and various events that happened in the past, they tend to A, blame the companies for publishing and marketing various bad ideas and or B, blame the readers for buying said bad ideas but never seem to blame retailers for going along with it all. Do retailers deserve a certain amount of blame or are they innocent middlemen trying to make the best of a bad situation? Mm, you know, I, I, I unfortunately, of course, when you get into a is it A or B – I mean, you know, it's You're like it's it's C, it's, right. you know, or really like F, right. all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, are are retailers innocent middlemen? No, because they're trying to make the most amount of money. Right. But at the same time, do they deserve a certain amount of blame? I don't know how much blame they really do deserve. Right. Because if the publishers are hyping it up and the customers want to buy it, are retailers supposed to make a stand and say, "I do not want that money." Right. Cut, I mean, 
as occasionally is pointed out, re- retailers are the customers. You know what I mean? Like the they resell the yeah, books yeah. to the yeah, industry. So they but as far as publishers are concerned, they are the customer. Yeah, they buy books on a non-returnable basis because and because they're in competition with one another. I mean, the fact is, is that they find themselves, you know, when Marvel starts grinding up and overproducing, like you see a lot of them begging the person not to do that, you know. And on the other hand, there's also they make them that, you know, retailers make a lot of money off the variant covers and insist that they do fine with Marvel sales and everything's great over in their neck of the woods. So it's I mean, it it it, it is a complicated field, first and foremost, I, you know, there's on. I, I would say when I'm feeling incredibly generous, everybody is doing the best with a bad hand that they dealt, which is that was dealt, which is just the fact that the marketplace is incredibly is for the most part incredibly small. When you start talking about having, um, you know expanding that that industry and the it, it, you know stories about the 711 spinner racks and things like that those things changed and went away for a lot of different reasons you know and we're really getting uh like a lot of the outside infusion from like book publishers for example like as we talked a bit about last episode the fact that many of these publishers have been around for a while and have established a very a steady um, side to the industry that has allowed the book publishing industry to grow, to give more people the opportunity to publish wider varieties of material. Like things are changing, but generally it's, I don't know. It would, it, it's not an industry that was built uh, to reward good behavior. It was not an industry that was built to, reward good long-term decisions because in many cases comic book publishers literally were fly-by-night dudes who like published enough collected money and ran so um i think i think there's a lot of people who make the case you know obviously as a dude who apprenticed under brian hibbs i think there's a lot of people who would say that if we didn't have the direct market and we didn't have direct market retailers Um, I don't know. I don't think, I think the comic industry might very well be a handful of all ages titles from both DC and Marvel, usually sold via subscription only, um, that are entirely based on whatever animated offerings come out. Yeah. I, I honestly think that I think the direct market gets a lot of shit, especially in these questions from Eric. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I think that if you don't have the drag market, you don't really have a comic industry. I think I genuinely think without the drag market in two thousands, comics pretty much would have gone away. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I know that that was you know the high point of the Warnells forum, and people were like, "No, graphic novels, it's, it's great." Yeah, yeah. Where were the majority of those graphic novels being sold in the drag market? Yeah, that's right. And like, you you lose the drag market, especially for non DC Marvel stuff. Right. Like you lose the drag market in two thousands, you probably don't have a comic industry. Yeah. Yeah, as it's seen. So, uh, so yeah. And then finally, 
just just to make sure that Eric uh, really wants to gild the lily, who is more evil, Graham since he owns a Kindle or Jeff since he owns an iPad? The answer is me. I own both. That's true. You do own both. Uh, I do own both. Yeah. 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 I don't own a Kindle, but I'm definitely just as evil. We we bought Amazon Prime for a month just so we could get free shipping on stuff and watch a bunch of shows, even though um, Amazon's a bunch. And and I I keep buying my comics from Comixology, which is owned by Amazon. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. Eric, we're both evil. Yep. But I'm grateful because I because I have both. I don't think so. I think I think we're both pretty. Evil. I mean, in my defense, I didn't buy the iPad myself. See, arguably that, yeah, exactly. Does that make you? So, does that make you more evil? Like I, that's where I would uh, be like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I I don't know, <laughs> um, Jeff. I want to do something controversial. Okay. Kevin Donlan's question. I actually want to spin it off into another podcast because I want to spend a lot of time on it. Okay, that's great. I can I, so can I say it. what it is, and then we can say we're, we'll talk about it in another podcast? Yeah, I think that's fair. Because I, th- I think it's I think it's a really good one, but I also think it's something that if we do not literally just pay lip service, we're like we'll be talking about it the rest of the show. Yeah. Kevin asks. Um, so this should lead to a quick discussion. No, right. it wouldn't. If you were to recommend an introduction to comics to different age levels, what would they be? They could either be funny books or even scholarly journals. And the age groups are 8 and under, 9 to 13, 13 to 15, 16 to 18, 19 to 25, 26 to 35, 36 to fogies, and get off my lawn to curmudgeon. <laughs> First I, of all, I do wonder where the line between fogies and get off my lawn is. Mm-hmm. And also, isn't curmudgeon also get off my lawn? Not right. quite sure. But in all seriousness, I think if we were to do that, anything other than like literally just like randomly naming titles, yeah, I think we'd spend the rest of the episode on it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a good idea. Let's come back and tackle that, uh, Kevin. We'll... It's a really, it's a really good question, but mm-hmm. it's one that deserves far more time than we can give it right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Instead, we'll answer something like uh, Martin Gray's. Like, if Silver Age Marvel had done family style spinoffs, a la. Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen, who do you think could have carried a book? What a wonderful question. Uh, the Spider-Man supporting cast. Yes, and specifically, totally. I... yeah, Spider-Man family, and in particular, I think that if you'd had a late 60s, early 70s Mary Jane Watson comic drawn mm-hmm. by, like, say, John Romita, and, yeah. you know... Uh, it's cheating, but you could also say the Daily Bugle. Yeah, I think that's true as well. Uh, Rick Jones actually came to mind in a way. He's almost like the Marvel Universe's uh, Jimmy Olsen, sort of. Yeah, and... I, I think that would be a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, who else, though? I mean, you could probably, if you wanted to, do one with um, Sharon Carter. Right. Yeah, I think I, that's actually that's pretty true, too. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it really does. I, I'm definitely trying to keep to Silver Age Marvel, and I sort of feel like... Everyone, interestingly enough, the the big the biggest book that had the most ideas and spinoff characters would be the Fantastic Four. You know, from Doctor Doom to Namor to the Inhumans to the Silver Surfer. Uh, but I don't think that that's necessarily the sort of what what Martin's asking per se. You know what I mean? I'm trying to think yeah, of I, 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 supporting cast, unpowered I'm, supporting yeah, cast members. Yeah, non-powered yeah. supporting cast is definitely what I'm I'm taking as, from as well. Yeah, and I sort of feel like, again, Spider-Man was the one that sort of had the biggest chunk of those 
right off the bat, you know, that kind of had some variation. Like, I don't know if I you mean, could really do it with Daredevil's characters or things, at least, again, yeah, in this no one, no one wants to read the Foggy Nelson book, you know, or Karen right. Pate. But, yeah. like, you know, a Flash Thompson comic could have been fun. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, it, it really does. It really does depend on where you go. I mean, who knows? Like, you know, you see someone who's just dying, you know, someone could have cut loose. Get Barry Windsor Smith drawing a the adventures of Wong, you know, and it could be amazing. But yeah, I don't I do think that Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, God love them. I do love that DC Universe is slow very slowly reprinting one issue of Lois Lane at the time. Edit, exactly. They're really like, you know, we'll we'll make you wait. I do wonder if when the the new series launch they're going to just, you know, dump a lot in. On I them. hope so, particularly for both Lois and Jimmy, because I just feel like those books are just incredibly fun reads. So, yeah. Douglas O'Keefe uh, asks, what was the end of Mr. Miracle about? And how do you feel about the series as a whole? I, I, I guess I wonder what you mean by what the end was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last issue, uh, I actually looked it up, Jeff, because I... I didn't remember exactly what the last issue was Mm -hmm. and the last issue is about what happens after you've made a decision and you're constantly haunted by the the fear that everyone around you is disappointed in your decision right and and you hear them telling you that you're wrong and they're disappointed in you Mm -hmm. but ultimately you choose to stick to that decision right you know uh beyond that what is it about it's about scott being told he is in a fancy world and choosing to stay there because he's happy. Right. That tends to happen. Yeah. Repeatedly. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think that's correct. Uh, a fantasy world. I, I think Douglas, what I liked about the conclusion of Mr. Miracle is Scott is told as fact by various people, what his situation is. And those situations are not the same but everyone says it as if it is the quote-unquote truth yeah and i think that's a very crucial part of um mr miracle i i think that tom king very much is a uh holds true to the the you know the classic you know the closest thing that he has to a catchphrase you know let me be scot-free and find myself and i feel like it Mr. Miracle is a, a book about adulthood because you get to define who you are, but nobody will ever tell you. People will tell you you're right. People will tell you that you're wrong. But if you pay close enough attention, you realize that nobody really knows. I think ultimately including yourself and how you end up dealing with that is the... Um, is the lesson that your life is, I guess. And I'm just going to disagree with you slightly. Okay. I think people will tell you that you have made the right decision and people will tell you that you made the wrong decision. <laughs> right. But I don't think that people necessarily ever fully understand what you see your life as being. Yes. And instead will tell you that they will tell you their understanding of it or their belief of it or their read on it. Yes. And those can be wildly untrue yes. or very close to the bone, mm-hmm. but never exactly correct, never exactly true to you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And and I think issue twelve actually does that really well. I think so too. Uh, it 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 does it in in you know science fiction metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know everyone everyone he's talking to is dead. Right. You know, and basically he gets to confront their ghosts, and and he does in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, explicitly like he he disowns Orion as his family. He fights High Father. Yeah. You know he's not just confronting you know, their version of what, you know, we disapprove of what you've done. He's also fighting back against the fact that they shaped his life to that point. Yes, exactly. You know, and, mm-hmm. and very aggressively saying, like, I'm not the person that you thought I was, and I believed that for so long, and and that's not true, and I'm angry at you because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the series as a whole. I can't be objective about it. Like, I, I a lot of, like, my like self mm-hmm. I feel is, is like I, I project strongly onto that series. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened at like a very tumultuous time for me. And so I get a lot out of it, mm-hmm. but I also can't divorce that series from what was happening for me at that time in my life. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't know where Mr. Miracle, the comic ends in my life begins. Yeah. Yeah. You that know, I, I'm like, you know, you know, I, I kind of like, I kind of can, obviously there's what's on the page. Right. Like, I don't think I'm, you know, the son of High Father, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, there's there's like ex- there's pages where like explicitly felt like it was not about what was on the page; it was literally about what was happening to me when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. So, I love the series. I genuinely love the series. I I think that um, I think that there are. I can see why people would be disappointed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Douglas actually says, I started reading with a lot of enthusiasm, but by the last issue, I felt like I'd learned the pizza I'd been eating was made out of cardboard. And honestly, I think depending what you went into the series wanting or expected, mm-hmm. like the series, the series seemed like it was building towards something that it did not deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Right. And so I uh, I can see why a lot of people would be disappointed by it. Yeah, I think I think there's a I think there's a very good case to be made that there is a tremendous amount of bait and switch in Mister Miracle, uh, and and I of course you know some people I myself included feel that more about King's uh, feel that way about King's Batman. For me, the Mister Miracle the bait and switch totally works. It, I mean, not only is that kind of it's just it's it just ultimately it it pays off the the unlike some of the other stuff i feel like everything that king sacrifices to make the book more emotionally true and resonant works for me because of the level of what it says that's emotionally true and resonant and also in ways that to me are very ultimately very faithful to the character which is something that does matter to me yeah it's i i yeah i i I honestly can't be complimentary about the series enough yeah so tom shapira from twitter asks if you could have one never completed work big numbers 1963 etc finished what would it be i'm gonna cheat Mm. I wish Steve Englehart and Joe Stated had stayed on New Guardians and I could have seen what that book was supposed to be. Mm, that, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Englehart left after plotting issue two, but he didn't even script it. 
mm-hmm. um, because he basically felt that he'd been extended promises about what he could do with the book, mm-hmm. and and the, the DC just lied, outright lied to him. Yeah, and there's like I I really would be fascinated to see where he was going with that book. Mm-hmm. Like you know, people make fun of Snowflame, the cocaine fuels villain in second issue with good reason, right? But there's something to be said about the fact that it was a series without uh, a straight white male mm-hmm. in its protagonist cast. Instead, he was the antagonist, and the antagonist attacked him in the first issue with an HIV positive villain who gave two of them, who like gave two, turned two of them HIV positive. Right. You know, like. Where the fuck was he going with that? Right. I'm sure, absolutely positive, that he would have gone somewhere that these days people could not have looked at without you know using the words problematic or being embarrassed about. It. Yeah. Nonetheless, I think it would have been fascinating. I, I genuinely think it would have been fascinating. Mm. That's a that is a great pick. I have I have two picks. Um, one for the oh if only like near and dear to my heart and one like first off tom you mentioned 1963 i would love to see 1963 finished in part because of the number of alan moore's creators particularly stephen Bissett, that come to mind where they're like we would that book should would have like so much else that Moore had done should still be in print in a perennial seller if it finished and been completed and I would have gotten royalties and I wouldn't have had to, you know, take, um, uh, go, go to a pet store and buy, uh, antibiotics for fish to, in order to, to have medication, you know? So, um, but that being said, my personal close to my heart pick is Omega the Unknown by Steve Gerber, Mary Screens, and Jim Mooney. Uh, I don't know how much longer it would have taken to get there, but I loved all of the Gerber Screens Mooney issues and even the Scott Edelman issue, uh, which I think I can't remember. I think Ian Brill pointed out to me years and years ago. Um, I think that really would have gone a really great interesting place there we have it Graham did you die yes I did die or rather I hit mute by mistake because I was coughing and didn't realize I'd taken myself off mute <laughs> um, I read the second issue of Omega the Unknown mm-hmm. when I was a kid because it was in a uh, oh, uh, like an estate sale or something Yeah, and like did not understand what the fuck it was to the point where I didn't think like I didn't think it was a real comic. I thought I'd imagined it after a while. Yeah, I believe it. I absolutely believe and it. And then I think it was when it was reissued when the Farrell Dorumpel series, the Jonathan Wesson series was yep. coming out. I was like, Oh shit, it's real. Yeah, it really does exist. Yeah, there is there is some shit in there that is amazing. So yeah, that that would definitely be my pick. Um George Johnson from Twitter asks, Has The Walking Dead peaked or did it earlier and we are in the decline now? Um, I, I will, since I read it, I'm going to take, I'm going to both ask and answer. Sorry about this, Graham. Uh, the walking dead has peaked and was in decline. Robert Kirkman has taken a big old pair of, uh, electric, um, resuscitation paddles and, and, and shoved it on the, the chest. And we'll see if that actually works and turns things around 
or not. I think that there's a lot that uh, Kirkman could do um, to to revitalize the book. And and I'm talking, I'm sort of talking, quote unquote, creatively peaking. The mm-hmm. sales certainly have peaked and are in decline. And I think that it is quite possible that they will be permanently in decline, which I think, honestly, everyone who cares about this sort of thing should take careful note of in terms of what is the maximum limit of issues slash trade paperbacks slash compendiums that you can sell a lot of until people are kind of like, you know what, this is never going to end and I'm going to get off of it. Like Mm -hmm. it's clearly far and above the sort of 60 issue range that we used to classically shoot for, you know, at, at Vertigo and things like that. But it appears it is not going to be as high as, Jesus, what what number are they at? 290, 190? I can't, I, I so don't pay attention. Let me see here. Walking Dead is on issue. It's, it's like 190 something. Yeah, 192. So considering sales fell off dramatically, um, I, and I think people will be like, oh, it hit a blah, blah, and et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's going to be like about 160 issues. Appears to be the max that you can have before people just sort of start getting weary, I think. So we'll see, but I think I I could be proven wrong on both counts. I think that it is, and I, I say this as someone who doesn't read it, but uh, in terms of culturally, mm-hmm. I think it. I don't know if it's peaked, but it's definitely been in decline for a while. Yeah. Um, you and I were talking when the last issue came out, and it was like the big moment. Mm-hmm. And you essentially said on Twitter, like, you know, are people talking about this? And I'm just not seeing it. Yeah. Like, it's dropped like half its sales in like last year. Absolutely. Which is honestly kind of shocking to me. Yep. 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 Um, so, yeah, it's clearly in decline. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's, I, I'll be curious to see whether the the quote unquote big moment will make any difference. I suspect not. Yeah, I, I honestly think that it is uh, honestly kind of a, a an obvious move, mm-hmm. um, especially given what was rumored for the television show. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that like a lot of people have thought about already, and it isn't a shock because of that. Mm-hmm. And also, like you said, you know, it's getting close to issue two hundred of the same creative team, and honestly, the same status quo with mm-hmm. you know mild changes mm-hmm. you know the 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 quote-unquote promised land changes identity mm-hmm. but that's about it mm-hmm. um it's possible that you know it's well first of all it's possible that you actually can't really change the status quo of a book like walking dead mm-hmm. not without betraying the concept of the book but also it's possible that there is just going to be diminishing returns and people are going to be like oh the, well there's no end to this story right. so I'm done. I mean, I'm I'm curious to see whether the the quote unquote big moment. Can I just say what it is? Yeah, like, I think so. It's been long enough. I think we can probably mention it. Killing know. Rick off. I wonder if that's just going to end up being a, a jumping off point for people. Could be. I mean, how do I put it? I it it would make a lot of sense for it to be. On the other hand, I feel like Kirkman. I suspect feels like he didn't have much to lose. I think that there is the possibility that it. What is great is it turns 
a lot of stuff around, but whether it whether that's in time or it's too late, like there's a lot of people of this is I think Kirkman has spoken openly about this in interviews. All of us were like, oh, shit. So he's going to go back to Negan, you know, and Negan is an incredibly popular fan favorite character who has a, a pretty good arc put in place by Kirkman in the sense of he was an evil son of the bitch that no one trusts and claims to have been better and gotten better. And the idea of mate turning around and making him the protagonist of the book, who's kind of like the guy who like feels he needs to step in and save everyone, but no one's trusting him. And you've got a huge supporting cast in there. Like, yeah, in a way, creatively, I want to see where that goes. And I, I feel like there's more people who want to see that where that goes than not. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think I think that um, Carl, who's was written off the show in The Walking Dead, is is a, still a very viable character in The Walking Dead, very sympathetic and largely underused. And so having him step up to the potentially to the plate, I think it could go to, go well for me. It's just more the fact that honestly, I think that storyline was so badly rushed and paced. I don't necessarily have a lot of confidence for Kirkman in that, but I've certainly been wrong before. So we'll see we'll see what happens, but I suspect that if nothing else, again that idea of if he can stabilize his sales, even turn them around a little bit, you know, as we were talking about like 35,000 35,000 issues or 30,000 issues of a self a published image comic is still um that is still something that artists and creators can in theory live on you know much less everything else so i think i think it can go as long for a very very long time even if it suddenly sheds you know a, maybe not half of its readers but like maybe a third you know so we'll see art lion uh also known as darth error from twitter what failed comic book publisher do you miss um, not necessarily a publisher, but I miss Deadline a lot. Mm. Um, which I guess was Deadline Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I miss Tundra from the the nineties a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically Tundra UK, which I honestly think lasted like less than a year. Right. Um, but was doing a lot of stuff with a lot of creators that I I really really admired and really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, though, though, that's probably who I'm, who I miss you. I don't, I don't know. I had a really tough time wrapping my brain around this one <clears throat> thought of something. And then, and then it just, it just slipped out of my brain. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to take a full pass on this one. Otherwise I'll just run out the clock. So if I think of something, I'll be sure to blurt it out in the middle. Of the I, yeah. I love that. It's like, Ten minutes from now, you're gonna be like, "Oh shit!" Right. I mean, cross gen. Yeah, Eric exactly. Grill. 
writes via email, given Marvel's previous attempts at creating manga-inspired work with to be charitable, less than successful results, what Marvel or DC characters or concepts would work if done in the true manga style by Japanese writers and artists? The natural choice would be students at the Xavier Institute, like Generation X and a Slice of Life manga, but given the X-Men's propensity to play sports whenever they have downtime, a baseball manga with a team of mutants would not be great. I am claiming ignorance in this. I honestly don't know if I could answer this in any reasonable manner, to be honest. You know, uh, I I was thinking of this and I had some ideas and most of them fell out of my brain. Um, The one that actually struck me as like, you know, what would be one that would probably be a big hit right now uh, would be damage control from Marvel, I think would make an excellent manga because (laughs) I feel like the Japanese have a very strong, a sense of like the humor of cleanup guys having to clean stuff up, you know, clean up messes after, you know, superhero fights strikes me as, you know, have, have you heard about um, heaven's design team, Graham? No, I haven't read it yet, but I think it's got just a fabulous premise, which is God in creating the universe um, ends up like, because he's running late on schedule, he hires uh, an outside design team to like he starts outsourcing his work so the design team keeps getting these rushed memos from god about animals and things that they have to create that that they have to figure out what he means from his cryptic notes and try to piece together the animals that they actually create for the earth that's absolutely great isn't that great like that is that's super fun yeah yeah that just seems to me or you know we've talked about the wonderful delicious and dungeon which is about a bunch of guys going through uh, dungeon adventurers who (laughs) decide to start eating their way through a dungeon and cooking the various monsters they eat and coming up with these recipes for imaginary animals and things great good stuff so anyway damage control is one that comes to mind in terms of uh uh the proper mix of like like whimsy and community and 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 things that could run like a good long this time a good long distance uh i gotta tell you after 18 19 issues of the immortal hulk i personally think that some manga dude would look at that and be like oh yeah okay you know i could totally do a body horror comic about oh sure especially with like the abomination stuff that's in there oh jesus christ this most recent issue god oh my god that that issue creeped me the fuck out it was great but the design of the abomination is yeah amazing yeah it's genuinely amazing and really and you know i've said this before uh it's one of these runs i'm like i don't know how you can go back to the traditional version of these characters after this oh yeah definitely yeah you know like it feels like an alan moore swamp thing shift yeah and i'm sure you know it won't be that's you know at some point because that's what happens with these characters especially a character who is like as big as the hulk Mm -hmm. but in the middle of this run right now, especially with what he's done to like the harpy mm-hmm. or or the abomination, it's it's kind of it. Theoretically, it's breaking it, but it doesn't feel like breaking it at all. It feels yeah. like breaking it open. It, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. It's thrilling. Um, the one thing I will say about this question is the one idea I thought of was Style H for Hero. 
Yeah, right. Dial H for Hero, I think, is a great choice. See, this is it where I think DC has a super deep bench. Challengers of the Unknown, uh, Secret Six, um, you know, fucking Sea Devils, uh, uh, Hawk and Dove, and also The Rose and the Thorn is such a, that's like such a manga idea that's just sitting there, you know, like, I honestly, I think I'm just getting started. It could it could go a long ways. <laughs> uh, and with Marvel, I mean, there's various stuff where part of me is like, oh, yeah, there'd be a thing and a thing. But I feel like it would really have to to switch and be swapped around a lot. And of course, a lot of people tell me that my hero academia is worth reading and is very much very, very much in the sort of uh, manga X-Men sort of style. So. Um, so I hope that gives you some stuff to go on. I love the I love this question because I had fun thinking about it. Let's put it that way. Adam Nave asks by email, what music do you think goes with your current favorite series and why? Hmm. Jeff, I'm going to tell you I struggled with this so much. Yeah, me too. For the dumbest reason. Yeah? I don't know what my current favorite series is. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, see, I, and my problem was I'm so out of touch with uh i'm so out of, i'm so i'm just so out of touch with music like like i you know i would think that for me my favorite current favorite series from the big two is probably the immortal hulk and but when i look at that i'm kind of like yeah i don't know i don't know like honestly like because my my first answer are like stupidly old bands like yeah i think the nine inch nails would go great with the immortal hole you know what i mean like i'm just like uh fuck you jeff so i don't i don't i don't know i think that that's i think that's actually a i think it's a good question because i don't know how to join my favorite comic book uh, my favorite music comic books, which is kind of a shame because some of my favorite music came from reading comic books. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, I, I'm going to spin this back and I'm going to say, Adam, I have a question for you, Ooh. which is I have recently discovered and every everyone can play along with this. I have recently discovered an artist called Margot Gurion or Gurion, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, I have never heard of her before. Spotify literally was like, maybe you'd like the song. And it was one of those, I do like the song. You have earned everything. That, like, I take back every shitty thing I've ever said about you, Spotify. Right. I am in love with this this musician. Adam, I want you to listen to Margot Gurion's work. And I want you to tell me what comic I should read based on it. Hmm. Adam also asks, best Egglehart storyline ever. Oh. All books he wrote are up for grabs. Oh, man. I, I would be lying if I said – no, here's the thing. I will say my favorite, and I'll say one that I think is his best. Okay. Favorite is Millennium. Mm. It just is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I know that everyone else thinks it's a piece of shit, and I am willing to say that it, maybe it is a piece of shit. I love that comic with the passion of a thousand sons. <laughs> so many reasons. I love it because the whole we will teach you the nature of the universe in 10 genuinely baffling platitudes thing <laughs> like just is is like it sings to me Jeff I can't tell you how much mm. uh I love the playfulness of Engelhart's captions in it mm-hmm. he is he's in fact his dialogue in general is 
hilariously melodramatic mm. and knowing at the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's literally captions that can only be written by someone who is simultaneously going, don't take this shit too seriously. It's ridiculous. But isn't it also awesome? Mm. Which is exactly what I want from a superhero comic. Um, I love the Manhunters as villains. I love the idea of a secret cult that sleeper agents in everyone's lives. I think that's that's just amazing. I love, as I've already said, the New Guardians. I I think that they are... I think that there's something really genuinely fascinating about that as a statement of the future of humanity. Mm-hmm. That it is uh, the future of humanity does not contain, as I said before, one straight white sister. Yeah. Um, like I think I I think that that is a statement. I love Estrano as a character. Again, I know he is, you know, so offensive to so many people now, mm-hmm. but. I just love him as a character, and I still think that his name is one of the best superhero names slash jokes that has ever been done. Right. What, like, it's literally a name that has layers. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I, I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely love that character, love his visual, love his characterization. I know a lot of people find it offensive, but I love the characterization. The name is really maybe my favorite superhero name of all uh and more than anything i love millennium because it's the rare crossover where the world is not ending Mm. it's it's actually one of the reasons i like dc one million as much as well Mm -hmm. although that does have a catastrophe in it Mm -hmm. but i love the idea of like the superheroes are trying to do something positive not fighting back against the negative but they're trying to do something positive Mm. and there's that uh, that really, really, really appeals to me. Yeah. Um, so that is my favorite mm-hmm. by far. Best might be Lost in Space Time West Coast Avengers. Mm. Mm, just for its complexity. And again, Engelhart's very much in his I know this is bullshit, but isn't it wonderful yeah. mode there, which, which really works for me. Um, I also really like the original Manhunter 2 parter in Justice League way back in the 70s. Mm. Mm. Good choices. All good choices. Uh, I'm going to stick to the, I'll keep it short, uh, but also depressingly um, uninteresting. Uh, My choices you would expect really is the Cosmic Banana storyline from Avengers running from more or less, I guess, the introduction of Mantis running. We'll cut it off at the marriage of the the double marriage of Swordsman and Mantis and uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch. I think that when you go through that soup to nuts, there is so much amazing shit that I could rant about, not least of which is that uh, Englehart really paves new ground because buried in there is an origin story for the Vision that is that also is happening at the same time that Mantis is learning cosmic truths. And the, I guess the wedding of big cosmic abstractions to highly specific personal discovery is, is just phenomenal. And let's face it, as we know from reading uh, our quick read through of issues one through 300, 
Avengers was kind of a shit book until uh, Englehart took over. Like, even the Thompson Adams stuff that everyone jumped up and down over, most of it was mainly, eh, okay. Like, Englehart in the Cosmic Donna storyline is telling big cosmic Marvel adventures and and also really being able to, to effortlessly juggle a bunch of different characters with different characterizations and still making the drama as high-pitched as it was without the characters being so goddamn relentlessly unlikable as they were under both Lee and Thomas. So, you know, it's it the Avengers owes him a lot. But yeah, I think that's that's definitely the best Englehart storyline ever for me. Although I think your choices are excellent, especially Lost in Space Time, which from a technical aspect, I would say is arguably even more um, impressive and successful. It's it's more ambitious, mm-hmm. uh, but in a weird way less. I mean, it's it, intentionally less original. Like it purposely goes back to things that already exist. It's yeah. very much the the Uber Englehart continuity porn right storyline. Yeah, which which he loved. He he adored. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's it, but. It, yeah, Cosmic Madonna is, is also, also wonderful. Yep. Roger Wilson, aka Flash, asks: In the wake of the Swamp Thing cancellation, etc., and the forthcoming Warner streaming service, is DC Universe doomed? Certainly, seems like Warner would want to save the original content for his new all-encompassing streaming service. I'm worried about the future of Stargirl, which I really want to see. Maybe DCU will exist only as a platform for the comics. Can the two services coexist and the original content would premiere on both at the same time? I know it's all just speculation at this point, but you guys seem closer to the mouth of the Oracle than I am. Yeah, I got to say, I was going to be like, oh, ha, ha, ha. No, you've got nothing to worry about. And then that was like two weeks ago. So, Graham, what do you you think? Because I have heard very persistent rumors about DC Universe being in big trouble. Okay, so the Persistent Universe and DC Universe being in big trouble have basically been there since DC Universe launched. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say they're not true. Mm-hmm. It's just that, honestly, they're nothing new other than Swamp Thing's cancellation made it all seem more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, also worth paying attention is that nothing beyond Titans has been renewed. Right. And no new series has been announced beyond Stargirl, which right. was like a year ago now. Um Part of that might just be there's so much that is still to premiere. Mm-hmm. Sargle hasn't shown up. Harley Quinn hasn't shown up. Um, they might just be pacing stuff out. I'm surprised we haven't heard anything more about Doom Patrol Season 2. Mm-hmm. That makes me think that maybe they are going to like shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard anything realistic either way, to mm-hmm. be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't know. I would not be surprised if it is uh, within Warner's more in trouble than it used to be mm-hmm. because people who were behind it launching are essentially gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will see. Right. I, I mean, I wouldn't lay any money on it living or dying at this point. I genuinely have no idea and think it's too close to call. I can see arguments in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that we're going to get a point where you will get something debuting on two services at once. Mm-hmm. I do think you might get a point where everyone who signs up for Warner Media gets DCU automatically, but DCU is also available as an external service. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that would be if it existed only as the comics platform? No, no, or... no, as, as, the, as the TV stuff as well. Oh, okay. All right. Um, we, but we'll see. We'll, like, I have no idea. Uh, honestly, I think that Final Decision might not be made until Disney Plus launches, and everyone sees how Disney Plus performs. Right. Yeah, so we'll like let's let's revisit in like six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ro- Roger also asks, "Who was your favorite Legionnaire?" I guess mine is Phantom Girl. I always all dug the bell bottom costume. Right, uh, Graham, um, Cosmic Boy or Brainiac Five? Oh, interesting. I always liked. Uh, oh no, Wildfire. I was going to say Wildfire, right? I was did like, we, did we talk about this last? Yeah, week? we we've talked we've talked about this in the past. The fact that we both dug Wildfire a lot. Um, yeah, Wildfire's great. I'll be honest though. I also liked a uh, Karate Kid for whatever reason. Uh, shit, and there was one other that I just thought of that I forgot, but. Wildfire and and probably Karate Kid were were probably my faves. Did you read the seventies Karate Kid series? Yeah, I did. Yeah, my my brother spot it. Yeah, I I I did like it actually. I thought it I thought it had a lot of potential. I thought it never really got a chance to hit that potential. But I was I was weirdly down with like lost out of time Legionnaire who doesn't have much superpowers. You know who you know trying to trying to make a make a place for himself. Make it in a world he never made. Exactly. Leaf Smith asks, where do you see the comic industry in 10 years? And more specifically, what happens to Marvel Comics after it's wrestled from Ike Perlmutter's cold, dead hands, not to push death in anyone, but... <laughs> uh, where do you see the comics industry in 10 years, Jeff? You know, this is one where I wish I'd made notes, because when Leaf asked that, it's such an all-encompassing, terrifying, you know, and specifically with Marvel, because, yeah, Perlmutter at some point will die which I think he has an incredible amount of control over Marvel Comics. And at that point, it does seem like that it's little, you know, sort of bubble that keeps it separate from, you know, running in its own way, separate and apart from the Disney empire um, should collapse. But uh, can I do glib answers and then you can give nuance answers? Sure. Where do I see the comics industry in 10 years? It's going to essentially be like it is today. Okay. Because in all honesty, I don't think comics industry today is massively different from 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, digital has made more of an impact, but beyond that, I, I don't really think there's a significant difference. Um, I think that there are going to be more external to the, the drag market outlets. I think the book market will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. I think that digital probably won't continue to grow, but will change. I think we're going to see more stuff like Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I th- I would not be surprised if it looks pretty much like it looks now. Where's Marvel going to be in 10 years? It's going to look a lot like DC does today. Mm, interesting. <laughs> which is to say a mess? <laughs> uh, which is to say very much... Uh, at very much a pawn of the larger corporate struggles. Yes, right. Yeah, volatile. Let's say I let's yeah. say volatile. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. I think that it's quite likely the comics industry in ten years will look the same, but quite possibly smaller. 
the number of long-term readers graying out and or retailers shutting down, it's so much more expensive to start up a comic store and get it on its feet, as I, which is a ridiculous thing for me to say to Leaf, who runs the most excellent um, Mission Art and Comics. Mission Comics and Art? Why am I... Yeah, Mission Comics and Art. Sorry, so sorry, Leaf. Excellent store, a wonderful person. Um, but it, yeah, that sort of stuff is hard, and I think it's going to be harder. But can the industry still survive on average issues of you know twenty thousand, twenty five thousand copy print runs? I think so. I think so, and I think and I think it will. It may be a smaller marketplace as far as the big two goes and probably larger in some ways for everyone and everything else so but yeah that would be nice Mm -hmm. but we'll see i i i i'm weirdly cynical about it changing significantly but we'll see Mm -hmm. dan billings asks my comic shop has an issue with pull lists because customers with extensive asks or specific graphic novels disappear in addition the number of large pull list customers has significantly declined a few questions related to that one do you think pull lists are positive or negative for shops do you want to go through these and then answer them all or do you want me to stop no let's go through let's go through them all and then we can sort of jump on through each one Two, from what you hear, is the same loss of large customers happening everywhere? Three, if so, what do you think could change that? Four, is there something on your pull list that you seemed to never be able to drop either in the past or today? Okay. Um, I feel like the first three are very much of a piece, and then the fourth is, is like a, a an epilogue. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I'll answer, yeah, sorry, I was say, I'll no, answer no. number four first. Oh, okay. I, I have a tendency to... Um, get really excited about books at the start and then like drop off of being excited and then not take them off of lists for a long time. Yes, definitely. Yep. Um, like I can think of a bunch and I'm not going to name names because a lot of them are from the same writer and it's going to sound like I'm just that writer. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I've, I've done a bunch and, and that is a flaw of mine that like two issues in, I'm like, this is amazing. And I should really like wait at least to the end of our storyline. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I uh, uh, for myself, um, I feel like relatively early on because I was never uh, like, oh, a completist. Like it was never like, oh, I've got to have a complete run of this character. And so therefore that person, that character always stayed on the list or um you know, at a certain point, like I kind of drifted away in the early 90s into indie comics and then, you know, keeping one toe in on the DC, the big two, and then kind of coming back to for various reasons. But usually I'm more creator driven. All of that said, I think on my pull list that that never quite goes away in the past or today, probably Batman has been the most consistent over the course of. Oh, fuck. Ever since. Forever. Like, I feel like you've been buying Batman forever. Yeah, it's it's not quite. Like, when the hell did Hush... But, I mean, because I, I bought... But Hush, issues. Hush was, like, 2006 yeah. or something? Yeah, so, right. So, it's been, it's been 13 years. And, in fact, I was buying... See, I don't even think I bought all of Brubaker's Batman, which was right before Hush. So, yeah, I think probably starting with Hush on... So yeah, that's 
That is a good long time. That's probably the longest chunk. So Here's a weird thing. It's never, never, never been on a pill list for me. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I bought Justice League continuously since the Marson run. And honestly, and, even, and before then, I didn't buy it for like the dying age of the previous run. Mm. But I did get it religiously from the Detroit era through to the end of Dan Jurgen's run of mm. the subsequent series. Wow. So like I have I had like I have been buying Justice League almost continuously for I mean the better part of thirty years now. Mm. Mm. 30, 30, 35 years, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. That's and it's cool. never been on a pull list. I've never put on a pull list. I've just always weirdly just picked it up in the store. Hmm. Well that's interesting. Uh uh is there a particular reason why? That you can think well, of. Well, have I never put it on a pill list? Yeah. I, I honestly don't know. Hmm. Uh, so to jump back to to Dan's other questions, I'll, I'll take a swing at each and then Graham can swing or pass depending. Do you think pull lists are a positive or a negative for shops? All of my understanding is pull lists are a huge positive for shops that by putting stuff on a pull list, it is much easier. It's one of the strongest indications for retailers to get a sense of what might have interest on a wider basis um, and helps them determine what they order for the racks. So larger subs means larger rack orders with a lot more confidence and considering uh, in so many cases it's on a non-returnable basis that's super and super important for shops that being said uh pull lists with characters with extensive ass or specific graphic novels should be expected to put down a deposit i don't think that that is you know brian has always been very conservative like that um and uh, I think that is the smartest choice. He actually, even with that, still occasionally has people who will burn him, like guys who had been uh, customers of the shop for, you know, like 10 years and then suddenly didn't come in for like 11 months. He called them on the phone, like, and, uh, you know, they like never answered the phone. He had a credit card that was valid. He charged the books and then basically put I, them in I the was going to say, I, I had a, a – there was this shop I used to go to years and years and years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. And their rule was you could not sign up for a list unless you gave them the credit card. And if you didn't pick up your books within three months, they would just charge you the full amount. Yep. So I think – Which honestly seems like the way to do it. Yeah, I honestly. You send up dead, dead yeah. stock. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, I think it it can be the hardest thing, but I think that that is absolutely cert- uh, absolutely the case. That being said, once you do that, like uh, on top of that, there should be absolutely no complaining from my mind from comic sh- shop owners about extensive asks or specific graphic novels. Again, once it's once that stuff is laid down. Um, you know, I know there are those stores, Hibbs stores are not one of them. And frankly, I wish that he did where, um, rack customer, uh, pull list customers get free issues of previews and then they can go through and pick out the stuff that they want and special order it. I think that that is actually a good incentive to get people to buy the stuff, you know, even though it's whatever the fuck 
previews used to be like six ninety five or nine ninety five or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, for me, that's an extensive thing. From is the same loss of large customers happening everywhere? Yes, and the reasons for that, in my understanding, is is that. The older the customers get, the more likely they are to die or move when they retire, which means the shop loses them. Um, and I feel that older customers are the ones that have the the best predilection for pull list behavior in the sense of some of those guys are much more like, I want to have a complete run of blank, you know? And at that point, someone who's been buying Thor for like, 35 years is going to keep buying Thor if they have a complete run because they are completists. I feel the industry has spent a tremendous amount of time and money exploiting and screwing those people over. And so I think a lot of them left the industry, but frankly, they also do just either die or most comic book shops are located in um, you know, traditionally cosmopolitan areas. And at a certain point, people retire and move away so that they can live, you know, um, take their retirement money and, and live a, I don't know what you would call it, a, a, a life of retirement. And usually that means they leave the shops. Uh, if so, what do you think could change that? Honestly, I don't know. Because again, I feel like the marketplace, particularly for the big two, has a very strong tendency to try and exploit the customer. Like any, you know, there is, I don't think anyone has a sense of like, oh, let's have a complete run of blank. Also, most of the big two don't really start a lot of new characters for the most part. So it's not like people are like, oh, I finally get the chance to have a complete run of a character. And that character is damage. You know, it's like, I don't, I, I don't. <laughs> Who doesn't want a complete run of damage? Right, sure. exactly. You probably could get a complete run of damage really easily. Now. Yeah, exactly. Super easily. So I think, I honestly, I think the pull list thing is tough. I I don't think that it is going to happen, but I think that it would probably be, be smarter if uh, the direct marketplace started returning to a realm of returnability or semi-returnability with, hmm, how do I put it? There's going to have to be some, you know, the return non-returnable offered super steep discounts that helped retailers, you know, retailers bought at a significant discount. And of course, back when there was a back issue market, that made a lot of sense because stuff you didn't sell, you bought appropriately. So you'd have stuff that would go in the back issue bins. Consequently, you know, back, everyone talks about the numbers that, that, you know, Superman or Spider-Man or whatever were selling in the 60s. Sure, they were selling 200,000 copies. They were also having to print 400,000 and pulp the other, you know, 200,000. So it was incredibly inefficient. I think that there are ways that they could experiment with that where essentially switching more of the risk back onto the publishers as a way to grow to basically allow the stores to experiment more and to grow readership more. Cause I think that um, at that point also, I, I also think that in that sense um, what they will not do and should is by um, changing the nature of work for hire and allowing people to 
own co-own their creations again, I think makes a huge difference in terms of will you have new characters, you know? And because once you do have new characters that aren't just like a little sputter of like, oh, here's damage and silencer. Like, you know, if it's coming out, if they're new characters coming out relatively regularly, you get a new chance for them to stick. And then you do start having people, you know, you do start having the kid who buys whatever the 2019 equivalent of Deadpool number one or Nova number one is and sticks around. I'm, I think that is a broad suggestion on how to improve the drag market. I'm not sure if that's actually going to impact the pool list as <laughs> as a thing. No, right. really, seriously. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm supposed to say I'm not sure if pool lists need to be saved, and that's maybe a bit too broad. Mm-hmm. But I I think there's nothing necessarily inherently great about pool lists mm-hmm. and i think pool lists like if you do you want to change what's happening with pool lists individual stores have to basically make pool lists more attractive to customers mm-hmm. and you do that by offering discounts they do that by sadly putting in more work and mm-hmm. i you know it is sad because it's not like store owners are just sitting around like going oh mm-hmm. i'll just take today off right um but i i think that's the only i think the only way to save a pool list is for the pool list to have more value to the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's tracking books that might not be on people's radars or mm-hmm. recommending books or giving like free first issues as samplers or something, mm-hmm. uh, giving a discount, whatever. But I think that's the only way you can actually save a pool list mm-hmm. as opposed to like changing the direct market. Well, I think if you change the direct market and you start getting more customers in and younger customers, you can start getting more pull list customers. But I see your point. Uh, David M. says, who was Scott Free's mom? Bearing in mind Isaiah seems to have aged 50 years since Avia was killed. It's probably longer since he's a god. Um, I looked into this and I honestly can't – I don't know who Scott Free's mom is. And I can't find a reference to Scott Free's mom. Wow. Which is – really surprising and yeah. honestly makes me think that my research must be flawed mm. because has no one ever done a story about Scott Free's mum he's been around not. for 40 yeah. odd years right right like that's amazing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah I, the answer is I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know who Scott Free's mum is right so huh Oh. Yeah, Jeff, do you have any idea? No, no idea at all. I was really glad when you tackled this one because I was like, shit, I have no idea. But I'm also not especially well ver- as well-versed in the New Gods as you are. So so I wouldn't uh, know. Has Graham been reading John Allison er- online from early on? I started with the first issue of Giant Days and then started in Bad Machinery. And I've only recently been exploring Scary Go Round and found it's all part of the same continuity. Some of it is pretty surprising and spoilerific. It is. It's a very weirdly tight continuity. Have I been reading John Allison online from early on? Define early on. I started reading him when the first Only Bad Machinery mm-hmm. book came out. So I'll actually look into that. When did Bad Machinery... Volume one come out. Uh, apparently came out. No, it didn't come out. Twenty seventeen. You're lying. Mm-hmm. Internet. Um, Twenty thirteen. So I guess I've been reading him for six years. So is that early on? It's before Giant Days, which is probably early on for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. 
but I got really into him then. Like mm-hmm. I, I did. Like I, I was like, Bobbin's great, scary go round, wonderful. You know, what are all these things? And he had put out like um, one shots and shit mm-hmm. that were available, and and because they are all part of the same continuity, and honestly, because I think John Allison's an incredibly funny writer, but also I love his art. It was very easy for me to be like, I'll read this, I'll read this, I'll read this, I'll read this. So I don't know if 2013 counts as early on, but I like voraciously read it when I got into it. I re- it wasn't just a, oh, maybe I'll check this out. I really was like, I will search out everything like really, really dramatically. Mm-hmm. Do you have favorite Kirby monster stories? I created The Colossus is mine, both because he cuts loot on the art in a way that looks years ahead of the rest of the work he was doing then, and as it's the best of his monster as Golem stories. I should say, by the way, this is still David M's uh, question. Yes. Jeff, do you have a favorite Kirby monster story? Because I do not. I absolutely do not either. Like when they finally started doing high-end and digital reprints of the monster stories of Kirby and Ditko, I was like, oh, yeah, I should really dig into these. And uh, A, I have not. And B, to the extent that they used to pop up in Marvel at the back tail end of like Marvel annuals and things like that. I found that even when I appreciated the work from Ditko, Stan Lee's faux EC-ish scripting annoyed the crap out of me. Yeah, it's it's the writing is is like really shitty on yeah. the stories. It 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 is for me very difficult to get into the stories as well. Yeah, I, I honestly, as much as I love Kirby, I honestly have trouble getting into Kirby pre like sixty three. Mm-hmm. Like even even the first couple of years of Fantastic Four are rough to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I totally see that. Yeah, there's stuff that I'd love to explore, like Boys Ranch or things like that. But but I remember, I think I feel like I was in a comic shop with you, Graham, and we were looking at like one of those collections of like boy commandos or whatever, and we were both kind of like, uh, mm. yeah, it was a, I I what was that this trip? Was that no. what we went to? No, 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 I, no. no. I, I I remember both of us almost sort of like daring the other person to buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Being like, ah, ah. (laughs) uh, And like both of us, I'd be like, let's put it down. To be be fair, Graham, the last visit with you, it was delightful, but there was like way more comic book chicken uh, with you than normally, where you would just hold up an issue and be like, ah, you got to admit you're tempted. (laughs) Yeah, because we were also looking at comics that were like a dollar. Yeah. Exactly. You're like, eh, it's five dollars. It's fifty cents, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tough. Uh, also, David M's uh, last question: uh, What's Graham's favorite manga and Jeff's favorite Legion of Superheroes story? I already said Pluto is my favorite manga. There you go. And my favorite Legion of Superheroes story, which I think I've said elsewhere, the Moby Dick of space. Creep. And who who can blame you? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Chad Nevitt asks, with the Vertigo rumors this week and Wicked and Divine ending soon, I was wondering if it being an image instead of at all instead of Vertigo is a good measure of the imprint. Is Wickdev the first best example of a first of a post Vertigo Vertigo type of series slash run? I would argue that The Walking Dead is. Hmm. I think there is a world where The Walking Dead would have been a Vertigo book. Yeah, probably. Probably. Honestly, Walking Dead seems more vertical to me than than Wicked. 
Uh, that's funny. I feel like Wiktiv, I think we talked about this. I, it's hard for me to imagine Wiktiv without imagining um, Walking Dead. But honestly, I have to say there's so much of so much of images, quote unquote, major works feel like that was stuff that people first pitched at Vertigo. Or would have first pitched at Vertigo. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it really feels that there's a, so much stuff that could have uh, could, could have been. You're right. Pitched to Vertigo, maybe not published by Vertigo. Yeah. Uh, I, we should say like this. We're now late enough after this that people might not have the context. That when Chad says the Vertigo rumors this week, he's referring to the rumors that the Vertigo imprint is being shut down. Right. Uh, which like two weeks ago were were. All over the internet because Rich and Bleeding Cool was like, I heard someone told me, wink, wink, Vertigo is being shut down. And everyone just reacted as if it was fact, Mm -hmm. which was kind of amazing. Right. And everyone's like, oh, Vertigo, oh, RIP, like 1991 (laughs) through 2019. And you're like, okay, but it's like no one's actually said anything beyond Rich yet. Rich Rich says many things that aren't true. Um, but that's that's what he's referring to. Um, yeah. I I think The Walking Dead is is the first slash best example of post vertical vertical, and weirdly enough, post vertical vertical. If you consider vertical as the place that published fables, mm-hmm. which sounds like a really strange way of putting it, mm-hmm. but like the fables vertical is very unlike you know the vertical of Karen Berger. Oh, agreed. like in ninety three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine a series running 150 issues under Burger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it, it would have, and let's be honest, no offense, Fables should have been cut off a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it's if being a vertical, it, images instead of vertical is a good measure of the imprint. I think vertical's got lots of other problems. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I, I I think honestly, I think it's a good measure of image. Right more than anything yeah i think so too i mean uh, and, and i think uh, actually i'm going to take a diversion and i know i shouldn't because we're going to get near like one nine again and then i'm going to go weird but we're we're uh recording this like a week after the all the chelsea kane man eater stuff which for people who need context chelsea kane took tweets that were Critical open brackets, the most mild criticism you can imagine. Close brackets Thank you. of man eaters and placed them in uh, the comic, actually in the comic themselves, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't tribute them. Literally, just placed the thing. And literally, the tweets were like, "I want to love this comic, but it's a bit like trans exclusionary." Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, honestly, like Chelsea kind of melted down publicly on twitter and then like closed her twitter account in response uh that happening a week after the joshua luna stuff um for me really played up the limits of image mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a publisher and then also made me realize image is fucking weird jeff oh it is in weird no other industry would a vanity press be considered a major player mm-hmm. yeah, where I suppose like, because image is just a vanity press. Like, that's all it is. People, like, the creators have to pay for their own books. Uh, 
Yeah, in most cases, that's that's I believe in the large majority of the cases that is true. No, uh, how do I put it? Like, I feel like Image is a publishing cooperative, and part of me wants to say like, a there are probably some other examples of publishing cooperatives we're, that we're, happened before. The, they're the biggest thing in the industry. Well, no. but like I that, mean, that's what makes Image such an oddity. It's not that it's like a vanity press or publishing cooperative or whatever. It's that. It has become such a powerhouse by managing to go, we have absolutely no say over what anyone does so we can publish like offensive shit work and say we're standing up for the artists while simultaneously going, yeah, but this isn't going to get published because it doesn't match our personal taste. But it's so weird. No, I agree. Image is weird. Yeah, image image is absolutely, absolutely, unbelievably weird. But A, so is the comics industry compared to other industries and et cetera, et cetera. But yes, no, absolutely. You look at image, it is shocking. And, and, and what's amazing is this how much image really more or less – exists as an industry was at the edge of melting down essentially like image exists and continues to exist and continues to be viable because so many of the deals that it cut at a certain point were as long as it continues to publish a certain amount of pages every month it gets treated like a major publisher you know and so Consequently, so there's just so much that's that's weird and roundabout for that. So anyway, but yeah, that's 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 probably probably a story for another time. Tiny Skeffern on Twitter asks, "Is it time to put the FF out of its misery again, or rather, should we have left the FF in cold storage?" I love Dance Lord, but it's all feeling a bit stale. Hey, look, it kind of connects to that earlier question. It does. Um, no, it's not time to put the FF out of this mystery. If done right, the FF is, is a great book. Uh, even if it's not at the cutting edge that it was under Lane Kirby, there's a lot to be mined there. Honestly, I thought Chip Zdarsky's Marvel 2 and 1 was fucking great. And if he had been given FF, I suspect I would really be enjoying the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually, even though I haven't read uh, Zdarsky's Marvel 2 and 1 and have heard good things about it, I would actually say that there's probably a good case to say that the FF should have stayed in cold storage, um, that that they brought him back uh, more or less too soon. I mean, yes, they could brought him back like two years after you got rid of them, which mm-hmm. is it's almost no time. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the concept. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's true. It's one of those things where I sit there and I look at it and I'm like, I don't necessarily know how you would handle it, but that's... Again, I don't have imagination, so yeah. I, I honestly would recommend that you read specifically the last two issues of Sadarsky's mm-hmm. Marvel 2 and 1, right. uh, which is post-slot bringing them back. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how Ben in issue 11 and Johnny in issue 12 deal with having been abandoned for that time. Right. And it's, it's really good stuff. It's really good work. Hmm. Okay. I will. I will keep that in mind. So... Earl Stevens via Twitter. Uh, question this has probably been spoken about, but as a longtime listener, I still don't know how you two became pals. I stole Jeff's intellectual property. Yep. We'll keep it at that. Credible Hulk via Twitter. I love the fact that we'll just keep it at that. So uh, We have told the story before. Yeah. Uh, shall I do a super short version? Uh, yeah, definitely. 
Uh, I did a blog called Fanboy Rampage, which I honestly God thought I'd come up with the name of, but I 100% hadn't, because Jeff was doing a, a column called Fanboy Rampage uh, for the Comics Experience newsletter at the time. But we didn't meet for a long time after that. That's right. Because I got to know Ryan before I got to know you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were still working at the store at that point. That's right. And so I got to know you because I'd go into the store a bunch to talk to Brian and then to talk to you and Brian. Right. And then you and I just became friends from there. Yeah. I think that is the, the shortest, sweetest path. I feel like we talk about it a little bit more in an article we gave. Was it to the Outhousers when we um, – because we, we did a – to promote – When we promoted the, the Patreon, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Outhousers were kind enough to, to interview us. And I want to say we did an interview at The Beat. And I don't remember which, which of the two it was. But we talk about it there if you wanted it more distance. But Graham is, as ever, impressively succinct. Credible Hulk via Twitter. Which Marvel and DC heroes would host the best podcast and on what topic? Other than Blue Beetle and Booster Gold reviewing fast food restaurants, of course. Fuck me. I'm so pissed I didn't write down because I can reconstruct this, but we're under the gun. So, Graham, why don't you talk and I'll see if I can remember what the hell my mine were. Cause I um, the cast of Warnell's uh, Wildstorm doing a new music review podcast <laughs> uh, and it's specifically like the Wildstorm now as it exists uh yeah they would they would do one and that would be absolutely fucking great and it would all be like unlistenable nonsense mm-hmm. but they, they would be really really passionate about it and i i would i would tune in just for their utter utter wankery um what else? The best podcasts? Because I can think about like shitty podcasts. Mm-hmm. Like Ms. Marvel would do a passionate but shitty podcast about fandom. <laughs> you can tell. Um, oh, God. Who else? Who else would do a podcast? Um, you know what? John Johns would do an interesting podcast. It'd be like This American Life. <laughs> That'd be pretty great. Actually, you know what would also be great would be if John John Jones did a podcast where he interviewed other aliens. Oh fuck, Jeff! Do you know what it is? Mm. The question would do a serial type podcast. Oh yeah. Oh, that is perfect. You're right. Oh, and you know what? Actually, I don't know if they're doing this, but this was one of the things that excited me about this idea. As you know, Graham, as hopefully most of us know, back in the day. Shazam slash Captain Marvel. Billy Batson was a radio announcer. He basically had a radio show as a kid. Um, yes. I hope that someone has him doing a podcast in the current run. Is Jeff Johns writing that? Uh, yes, Jeff, Jeff Johns, Johns is writing that. Yes. Yeah, I really would love the idea that the the current incarnation of Billy Batson radio personality is Billy Batson with like. A, a surprisingly popular podcast and that's part of his you know his various clark kent style story hook for how he gets into stuff yeah i say i totally i totally listen to that jeff you should read out what you've uh, written on, on the, the share talk that we're both reading oh that's so funny i didn't realize of course you've got it open yes it took me forever it's miles morales and spider gwen it's a podcast called you've got this which is they literally talk about their favorite restaurants and stores in their respective earths and whether or not the other person has them or <sighs> they both go to them and then talk about how it was compared to the place that they have on their earth. Oh my God. That's so great. Isn't that oh great? my 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, yes. I would listen to that. Also, if anyone listening basically wants to record that podcast in character. <laughs> that totally, would be fabulous. A totally cosplay listen. podcast, that would be the best. So yes. yeah, that was the one. I think I think you're right. The question was a good one. Uh, Billy Batson. I know I had some other ones. Um, I actually do love the idea that Jason Todd started a podcast that nobody listens to and it's and he keeps having basically it just becomes a uh one where like the other robins call in and like prank him and so it ultimately at a certain point becomes a thing that nobody listens to except for alfred like literally nobody listens to but it's it's a podcast between that that essentially is all the robins and they just come in and gossip and talk crap and try and make each other laugh. I love that. I love that so much. Phil Southern, because I'm moving on quickly. Yep. In my mind, you guys have tens of thousands of loyal <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Listen to Jeff Laughter. For lack of a better way of putting it, what are your ratings? Are you comfortable sharing that kind of information? Irrespective, thanks for 10 years of great podcasts. Thank you, Phil. I like them a lot, especially comics news and old comics discussions. I mean, that's, I guess, what we do. That's, so We have some new welcome. comic stuff. I try to do it. So that's I true. Mean, you, you're much better at me than that. Yeah. Um, are we comfortable sharing our ratings? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to answer. I, I Jeff may or may not agree with me here. Yeah. Um. I am weirdly not comfortable, but not for the reason that you might think. I don't want to know. Mm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. This is a conversation I have with with uh, people at, at the place I write for as well. Mm -hmm. If it's all possible, I don't want to know how many people are reading my stuff. Mm. Interesting. Uh. It. It really legitimately freaks me out, hmm. Hmm. Uh, and so it, it's it's something that I'm really not comfortable knowing, and so because of that, like I can't share it with you. Mm. If that makes sense. For example, I literally don't know how many people listen to us. Right, uh, and honestly, uh, I th I think Graham's field of uh, discomfort has somehow managed to to you know cast a magic spell. No, look, Jeff, years and years ago, like we we did like know how many people listened, and we did talk about it. Yeah, that but a that was sort of like when we first started, and b yeah. we never really quite knew. Yes, and then, we, had, we had the whole thing where we were convinced that it was artificially high. Yes, exactly. Because it was. It was really high. Yeah. And, and we kind of – at least I got freaked out by it. I yeah. really did. Yeah, me too. And then it seems like now it seems artificially low. So uh, to the few times that I've tried to check, which – so I honestly uh, – Phil, we, we don't know. It would be wonderful if we thought that, that – if, if there were tens of thousands. I – it would be wonderful for Jeff if there was that. That's true. That is true. Just I, that I, I do. I do want the. I want the fame and the glory. But I. But that is. That is not the case. One thing that I do appreciate is, from what I can tell, we have a lot of long-term listeners and we have a lot of loyal listeners, which I really appreciate. I especially that we've been doing this so long. What I think is interesting is we have people who drop off. Like they either get behind or they get burnt out or whatever. And then it's very charming. We've we've had people, I feel like more in the last year or so, be kind of like, yeah, I started listening to you guys, you know, after after sort of wandering off and and it's great, you know, sort of like it's, you know, 
where it's it's. I was going to say, how can you get how can you get burned out listening to us talk about comics for three hours uh, three times a month? Yeah, right. But what's what's crazy about that? I will say this one tangentially connected thing, and it's mm-hmm. it's connected in the me getting freaked out thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff knows this because I've told him, and I've I've given him names. I'm not going to give out on the podcast. But comic book professionals listen to the podcast and have mentioned it to me, and. I get really, 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 really. Uh, I don't know how to react when people tell me that. Um, are you thinking of the person I'm? I'm oh, I'm sure you? I'm thinking yeah. of the person because I'm still recovering from one or two of the people that you told me. Um, and there really are moments where I'm like, I kind of wish I didn't know. Not because like it would change what we say, mm-hmm. but because there's just something weird about thinking that like I mean people I legitimately. I adore their work. Their work has, has really like been personally impactful. Mm-hmm. Listening to us mm-hmm. is super weird to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's true. That's a, that is a weird thing. Anyway, Phil, the sad fact is um, we don't know. Uh, if we do know, I, it sounds like Graham would not be comfortable talking about. It, so we probably wouldn't know. Here's the strange thing: if you guys can somehow work it out. Tell Jeff. He does want to know. I do want to know, and I've never really been able to get an accurate number that made sense. It is interesting because I feel like, I feel like we're, if nothing else, at a certain point, I'm like, we're a tastemaker podcast, Graham. Like, because there are plenty of people where I'm like, I'll walk in, I'll be like, hey, I've got a comic book podcast, and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, never heard of you. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, Jeff, like, again, think of the people who have, like specifically reference things in the podcast oh, that they, they weren't just being polite about. No, like they would have to have listened to an episode no, to, to reference things. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. So anyway, all I can say, Phil, for sure is we're glad you're listening. Thank you. Uh, comic cruncher via Twister, Twitter, via yeah. Twister uh, asks in your time in and around the comics industry, are there any, ob- any non obvious changes that have had a big impact? Obvious changes equals the stuff that everyone like talks about, like Amazon Digital Comics diversity, etc. Jeff, uh, yeah, that was, are there non obvious ones? Yeah, I would say there's non obvious changes. I mean, well, I, I, actually, it depends on. I feel like the two things I would say, you're like, yeah, Jeff, but that's obvious. So, well, no, because I, I, I was going to say, like, it really depends on what, how you define obvious, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, pricing. I think is is a is a significant thing that has has impacted. Right. Like we're at five dollar comics now, and that right. is like that's a psychological barrier. When when single issues go over five dollars, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a really really dramatic thing. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a good one. I would say a uh, may or may not be an obvious or non obvious choice, but uh, this is something that uh, changed that that I feel like people have talked about is um, when. Comixology slash Amazon made the point to remove in-app purchasing from the Apple iPad uh, app uh, and iPhones. Um, I think that is people have suggested that that has helped cap the growth on digital, which was seen like double digit growth for like the three or four years right up until that happened. So. And honestly, I, I think that's an argument that holds a lot of water. Mm-hmm. I think so as well. Uh, 
you know, uh, there there are some other non-obvious choices. I don't, again, I don't know if it counts as non-obvious, but streaming services. Right. Marvel Unlimited DC Universe, I think, are – and to a lesser extent, Comixology Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another one launched this week that I can't remember the name of. Um, those are – have been have made impact and I think are going to in the next few years have like significant impacts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. Although again, it's that weird thing of it, you know, uh, the, let's put it this way. Uh, the fact that Marvel doesn't seem to sell appreciably more or appreciably less than uh, DC, despite having had an all you can eat, you know, digital service that's six months behind the direct marketplace. You say that, but like Marvel and DC basically have, you know, a very close market share and DC is publishing essentially half the number of books that Marvel is these days. Right. So are you so right? So I think, I think maybe it is having an impact. So that we can't see because Marvel tends to run both more books and a higher uh, dollars per unit. Yeah. That could be, could be. Yeah, maybe. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Maybe, maybe that actually is the, the service is a big deal. I, I feel like there's other weird stuff that's like drilling down deep that people haven't necessarily taken any advantage of. Like there's a whole weird thing about shipping comics via media mail that I think is a, is a big deal that could be a big deal that, that nobody understands and we won't get into. So. <laughs> Um, okay, Jeff, go for the big question. Right, which is Tiobot Joss via email says, Hey guys, responding to your call for questions. Here's something I've been thinking about lately. Do you think the DC Universe, the shared superhero universe, not the multimedia app, which is still not available out of the States, damn it, is intrinsically more interesting than the Marvel Universe? What leads to this question is I noticed you were spending a great deal of time discussing the narrative and editorial implications and the overall mythology of the comics published by DC, something you rarely do about Marvel or at least about current Marvel continuity. I thought it might just because be because Graham seems to be the most interested of you two in discussing the continuity and in reading the con- comic books in the context of a larger universe and he's more invested in the DC universe, but... Maybe you also think there's something that makes them more interesting from this point of view. I remember Jeff saying that after some time, 20 years or so, every shared universe collapses under its own weight. And I think he's absolutely right about that. There not having been a real reboot in the Marvel Universe could have contributed in making the Marvel Universe flatter. Parentheses. Al Ewing's Ultimates, though! Exclamation point. Anyway... Sorry about my English. I hope I'm still understandable. Thank you for the podcast and thank you for making me read Judge Dredd. I really, really dig it. What a, I think that that is an excellent question in part because um, if nothing else, he references uh, old theories of mine. So I'm, I'm pretty You're like, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm in to, to reference. Yeah, no, I also, think, I also think that it shows like a pretty canny ear because I do think there's something to be said of the fact that Graham tends to read more of current DC stuff and is a little more invested in it and likes talking about that stuff. So I, I, I think, A, that seems part of it to me. And also I do think that 
with DC rebooting, it's easier to like sort of come in and talk about it. I feel I do feel like the Marvel Universe is I just look at it and I any continuity related discussion to me makes no sense because everything has been contradicted at least three different times. Yeah, it, it's actually it's actually much harder to think about Marvel Universe continuity. Yeah. And it shouldn't be because yeah. it should just like, well, everything happens. Mm-hmm. But so much has happened that you're like okay but that doesn't make sense like it weirdly makes everything seem more fictional yeah the idea that everything happened Mm -hmm. than rebooting every 20 years right and going we're starting over and even right now with with what's going on in dc where i mean what the fuck is dc continuity now right you know like Mm -hmm. but it's still somehow easier to comprehend the idea of like a continuity than it is like, you know, every single Marvel comic has ever happened has happened in the same universe. Yeah. Because everything becomes so cyclical mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. everyone has to be an idiot. Right. Exactly. It just it the the suspension of disbelief just doesn't work. So but I do think that both of those factors are true. I do think that that you know, I think Graham keeps up much more particular you know, and is more invested and does like kind of picking that part stuff apart more. I think if Marvel had rebooted after Secret Wars and done a full reboot, it might be a really, really different situation for me in some ways. But um, so, yeah, I I thought that was an excellent question, Graham. Do, do you have anything to add? Um, I, strangely enough, one of the things that made me think about was I feel like neither of us really read much Marvel anymore. You know, uh, that is... I Cause feel, I, kinda, right. I, I think that both of us like rely on Marvel Unlimited and do it sporadically. Uh, yeah, like, I, I read DC regularly, but in large part that's because DC sends me digital comps every Friday. Right, right. So I can load them on my my iPad slash Kindle slash I am Evil, and and read them that weekend. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so I am still reading weekly. And in many cases, I'm not. Like, I'll wait until, like, it's six months, and I'm like, oh, I should catch up, and blah, blah, blah. But the option's there, right? And I'm also aware of what's coming out as a Mm -hmm. result. Mm -hmm. Marvel doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm not buying Marvel books, because I'm like, oh, I'll catch up on them with Marvel Unlimited. Like, with the exception of, honestly, at this point, Hulk, Mm -hmm. right? And, And things that I am sampling. Right. You know, like, Silver for Black this week, which, you know... Man, there's five dollars I'm never gonna get back. But <laughs> you know, everything else I'm pretty much like, you know, I'll I'll catch up. And I, I feel completely confident doing that because there's so much else I am reading. It's not like I don't feel any don't feel like I'm missing out. Right. Um but it also means that, you know, if someone said to me, So what's actually happening in more of the realms? I have no fucking idea. Right. Like if it wasn't for Chad's newsletter, mm-hmm. like I would literally have no idea where the War of the Realms was still happening. Right. You know? Um and so that also plays into it. So I'm not quite sure how much of it is DC is just like a superior universe, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And how much of it is just like my access is greater to DC right. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I am more of a DC fan traditionally. And I am the one who's more interested in that as a topic. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if we are skewing the data. Yeah, I, I think, I think we do skew the data. But I do think that, like, uh, right now I'm actually – I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm usually reading somewhere between two to four Marvel titles 
uh, at a given, given basis, but I also tend to fall deeply behind. So like, uh, you know, um, Immortal Hulk, I'm, I'm reading like, you know, day of, or day, yeah, exactly. after, day of release, yeah. you know, yeah. and, uh, Jason Aaron's, uh, Avengers. I've been reading, reading that on, you know, again, really close week of release. Um, you know, I'm reading Jason Aaron's Conan stuff, uh, week of release and I'm buying and I'm subscribed now to Savage Avengers, which I, you know, on the one hand, I feel like an idiot, but eh, what the hell? It's my life. But like that, something that, that's like now Marvel's second deadliest team. Yes. They've just known Strike Force, yes. which is still the funniest thing in the world to me. Yes. That like within a month, they're like, this is the deadliest team. Nope. This is the deadliest team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's true. Marvel, Marvel has a lot of deadliest teams. Yeah. A lot of deadliest teams. No, I think, I think they just have a, a lot of the, hmm. Um, I think they have guys that really do some of what they're, what they do, they can do very well. But I also think that Marvel is so erratic that I can lose interest. I mean, if nothing else, like, you know, uh, Spider Gwen, which was a book that I read really religiously, like it kept it kept rebooting and even with the same creative team, but I would just fall behind and blah, blah, blah. I have to say, I'm really bummed. I'm like nine, I have nine issues of spider Gwen ghost spider. And I didn't start reading it until I had like seven issues in the bag. And it was just like, God, I got to read this. And then I was reading it and I was like, Oh geez, I don't really like this. You I was going to say that's, that's really bad. If you're like, Oh shit! I guess I've just bought like you know, I guess again these are four dollars each. Yeah, I guess I've just spent thirty dollars right. on something I don't like. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's a little tough. I definitely do think with the with the price point, I'm less likely to uh, experiment, especially because I'm not going into the store uh, every week and having someone be like, "Oh, you know, this is your their pick of the week, and it's something that intrigues me, and I pick it up and flip through," you know. Um, but also, yeah, Marvel. Marvel is pretty erratic, so kind of, kind of, it is kind of a bummer because I do uh, dearly love a lot of Marvel's characters. But in a way, it's precisely because of that that I find myself sort of floating around DC more. So, but I definitely do think we get stuff skewed because of Graham as well. So. I'm I'm ruining it all. Johnny Kilman asks via email, Images rise over the last 10 years has been fascinating. From the Chew launch literally the same month as you guys. Really? Oh, wow. What, what, shit, what else launched the same time as us? Bleeding Cool. Bleeding Cool launched the same time as us, Jeff. Wow. Did you know that? Yeah. No, I did not know that. Um, through to Saga, and they've been following it, things like Wicked of Six Criminals, etc. How this period is looked on will probably depend on how well Image manages to replace Saga and Wicked of with a lot of delayed titles, as well as Luna and Shaken type content issues. How do you think this time will be looked on? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I'm going to answer this very quickly. One thing that I noticed when I started digging in about it, it was around the time that that Image cracked like 10% market share. Uh, uh, yeah. in part because of the strength of the Walking Dead. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's something that they've never done before. And then I looked at the data and realized that it had happened like 
three separate times with Image since they had started, and or the, it was the third third time that it had happened since they'd started. Image tends to run very cyclically, as far as I can tell. I personally think that they had the strongest possible opportunity when they when sort of everyone looked among other things everyone looked at the amount of freedom and income that Kirkman was having on on the walking dead and a lot of people jumped over to image yeah. and i think at that point and that is when the the sales went up i think that that was Part of me feels in a way that that was a big lost opportunity that that a lot of the people who did not hang in there, who didn't publish on a regular basis, who took long hiatuses, who went and took on other jobs for whatever reason, I think that really ended up hurting Image. And because Image, again, is sort of this publishing cooperative where they're kind of like a gatekeeper but once you're inside they can't really do fucking much about you in a way uh i just feel like that's a i think it's a bummer i think it's a huge missed opportunity because i think and i think that ultimately the time was was super right for people after secret wars at marvel and I don't know, at maybe at year two or something of the new 52, where people were actively coming, more people were coming to the shops, but were disillusioned with the big two books. And I think some books uh, of images during that speculative front, like did go up as a result of that. But I'm very frustrated that it didn't stick. So I, so how this time will be looked on, I I think I feel like it's a lot like how so much of time for America is going to be looked on is kind of this weird thing of I really don't understand how so many people, you know, essentially how there could be so much stuff that was handled wrong with so little oversight i don't know it's i don't know i can't quite i can't quite piece it together but i think it's pretty sad myself yeah i I think it's weird it's going to look at it's going to be looked at i think as a period where image seemed like it was the great white hope of comics yeah fumbled like to an amazing degree yeah uh you know we're all we're talking about wigtiv a lot but wigtiv was you know, launched, announced in a period where a lot of comics were announced mm-hmm. that just didn't happen or like yeah. happened for like six months and then just fucking disappeared. That's right. Or, you know, like sex criminals, like just seem yeah. to slowly stop coming out. Yep. Um, Look at bitch planet, I, which was potentially huge. And then just I, completely. I, and again, just, mm-hmm. just like disappeared. Yep. Or um, pretty deadly. Kelly Sue's other comic. You That's know, right. where, where, like this is gonna break the mold, and like maybe it would have if more than six issues had come out. Yep. Um, it's a really strange thing because there was a period, especially when they did like Image Expos. Remember Image Expos? Yeah. And Image had bought into its own hype to a, a really impressive degree, 
and maybe by like the third damage expo, people were starting to be like, okay, but this is all vaporware. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're you're announcing things that just haven't happened or won't happen mm-hmm. or will barely happen. That's right. Um, and that was when the image bubble bursts. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Wigdiv a lot, honestly, because it's one of the few that managed to do what it said it was going to do. That's right. And honestly, Saga's hiatus is problematic for the same reasons. Oh. Like, Saga was supposed to go away for a year. Yep. And has not shown... I mean, it's like, you know, at least a year, I think they said, so they hedged it. But there's been no update in Saga coming back. Maybe they're saving it for San Diego, but it's weird to me mm-hmm. that there's been no update in Saga coming back, and also that no one seems to have noticed. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the part that's frustrating, is I'm not in touch with the retailers, but, you know, like, I haven't been hanging out with Hibs, but when that hiatus was announced, that was kind of the last... I don't want to say it's the last straw, but that was a sign that things are in sad shape, is you just don't have a, you know, as straight, like you said, Wiktiv continues to do what it said, as did Walking Dead. And I think there were incredible, um, you know, again, it, it did what it promised. It was reliable enough. People could hand sell it. You just got that kind of growth. You saw that with Saga, where Saga was like, yeah, we're going to do an arc. Then we take them, you know, whatever it is, two months off. Then we come back and then we do an arc and we promise that's how it's going to be. And then for it to be like, yeah, we're not done, but we're going to be gone for at least a year. People are like, wait, 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 what? Like that, that was at least here in the Bay Area. That was a pretty big blow. No, um, I understand, but like we're a year later, and there's been no update. Well, yes, no, and no one, me. no mm-hmm. one seems to be like, when's Saga coming back? Well, because I think I personally, I think that at that point, once they said we're taking a year unexpectedly, and, and people just like we're like, okay, we'll see it when we yeah, see it. Exactly, it's it, it's dead for us because I think most retailers don't want to look at the fact of like. At a year off, are we? What are we looking at? Is it going to be? Will half the market have just wandered off and not come back? You know, is it going to be a third? Is it going to be two thirds? You know. So I think a on the one hand they don't know, but b the fact is retailers are like, I've got to come up with something else to sell. You know, and maybe yeah. maybe that's Donny Cates. Maybe that's you know, Tom Taylor's DC zombie book, like, you know, whatever the fuck that it is, like, they're kind of like, this was, and as you know, because you and I were talking about this, that kind of happened at the worst possible time, you know, like that really, and it's funny, in a way, part of me is like, I don't know why Brian K. Vonch and uh, Fiona Staples should be more beholding to individ to to the direct market for supporting them and and helping them achieve a level of success because they're you know more so than like say Marvel or DC but it's that was a, that was a huge blow so I think that that is kind of you know to, all the rest of this stuff just means that the people who then proceed to never leave 
the industry for the most part are the good are the ones that call the shots. Then you get Eric Larson being just an utter fucking dumbass uh, on Twitter, you know, about the Joshua Luna situation and just coming off like a big turd. And it's kind of like, hey, Eric Larson isn't going anywhere. You know, it's kind of at that point, you're like, is it the bad, quote unquote, money or creatives driving out the good? Or is it just what is it? I mean, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the the manga industry and how people who even hit a great degree of success will completely fall ill under all the deadlines and the burnout Mm -hmm. and the work. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I think comics is an incredibly demanding industry for the people who are in it. And especially because there isn't any sort of larger support structure for the vast majority of them. So even by the time you, you take what it gets, do what it takes to hit that level of success. Um, you know, you, you could just be five years later, just be like a completely joyless husk and have no choice, but to be like, for my sanity, I have to walk away from this. I have to get out. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. at that point, the work for hire industrial uh, line of like, okay, you know, now you step in, sir. You are going to be making you know, Widget X, which is which is Batman now for us, you know? And then when that person gets, in theory, they've got two years of burning white hot. And then when they start to flop, you bring someone else in because, and that's how, you know, that's how the sausage is made. Like the industry always has to have new product every week, you know? So what we're saying, Johnny Cates is enjoy your hit, your hotness right now. Yeah. By 2021, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're not, not going to be good shape. You're going to be talking with a gun, the barrel of a gun in your mouth. So Johnny Kielman on that happy image also asks, I assume you've already had someone ask what your favorite comics of the last 10 years are. No. Which, surprisingly yeah, odd. I, uh, I'm probably the only person who will say Day Tripper, he says. Uh, you maybe, might, Greg, I liked you probably I, I like Day Tripper a lot. Yeah. Um, but more specifically, what have your favorite image comics of the last 10 years been? Yeah. Um, honestly, Wiktiv, probably. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I, I'm i honestly struggling to think of what other image comics I've read. You know what? No, Sex Criminals. I really think Sex Criminals is, is, has been really good. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not been like it's been incredibly irregular uh in in content as well as release but at its best like there, there's do you remember the depression issue of sex criminals which was fucking amazing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh yeah i casanova no it, it initial it, no but the first few issues of casanova are more than 10 years old yeah i think that's probably true yeah. but i don't think they were were they Image as well? Was it always Image? Yeah, when it, when it originally launched, it was Image, and then it went to Marvel, and then it went back to Image. Ah, okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, uh, I would say um, – shit, I lost the screen. Uh, for me, um, I really I really liked the first, what, two to three years of Saga. Um, I have been buying Walking Dead since – relatively early on i think since the first two trades and then the individual issues starting from like you know 18 on um sometimes it's you know it feels more like a 
an, a, a, I don't know, some sort of horrible methadone addiction or something than an, than an actual comics experience, but still buying it, still reading it. First couple of years of Saga, I'm... Yeah, actually, the first couple of years of Saga were, were amazing. Were fabulous. I'm hugely, hugely behind on it, but I adored Monstrous, and I just need to sit back down and uh, dig oh, into Southern that. Oh, Southern Bastards. Yeah, Southern Bastards actually is incredible and amazing. I'm a big fan of pretty much everything that Brubaker and Phillips have done uh, with Image during the course of that 10 years. Some things like uh, don't pan out like uh, Femme Fatale, like Fatale, you know, but I thought the criminal stuff was great. Kill and be killed, killer be killed. I thought was fantastic. Um, I'm uh, the humans. I really adored the very strange, uh, over the top exploitation biker movie with apes. That is the humans by Keenan Marshall Keller and Tom Neely. Um, you know, I think, I think there were others. I I'm sure there were others, but, but I, those were the ones that really came to mind where it's like, yeah, those are, those are the ones that have continued to keep me and, and hook me. Um, so let's do that. And then, um, I feel like Johnny's last question is you mentioned rise of arsenal as a nadir of bad comics. Is it the worst? What stands out is the worst comic ever. Uh, I, I kind of feel like we might have to punt on that one. You know, like, I feel like we gave two good answers and this one's going to get something glib. Like I, I, you know what, honestly, rise of, uh, arsenal is, it's pretty fucking bad. It is. Um, I mean, it's really, it's, yeah. it's bad in a particular way. There's like irredeemably bad, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's bad where you're like, ha but it's kind of funny. And there's bad where just everything about it is just, you know, it's cynical and it's it's depressing and it genuinely like it's pretentious in the sense of like it genuinely believes that it's saying something important mm-hmm. and it just isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I don't know if it's the worst comic ever, but it's it's like it's up there. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. I mean, it. It is, it's pretty bad. Honestly, I think there is a lot to be said for the weird thing about bad comics is to get professionally published, you do have to be at some certain level of craft in order just to be bad. Like, you're also demonstrably worse than the good comics that are out there. But I just want to say, like, because there's times where it's like, I've picked up stuff, you know, a self-published comic or I've looked at someone's web comics online and I'm like, yeah, that's, they've got a lot to do to be able to, oh. you know, and so that's, that's yeah. always yeah. kind of hard. You know what I mean? You've but, literally, you've literally just reminded me that when I was doing the Eisner judging. Oh uh, God. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like the word, the, uh, it's true. Rise of Arsenal is actually better than some of the things I read during Eisner judging. One of the fun things about the Eisner judging mm-hmm. is the complete lack of self-awareness some people have mm-hmm. that they will genuinely like send something in being like, I hope like I'm putting this in for consideration of, you know, best series of the year and you read it and you're just stunned. <laughs> I'd like just the, the, you know, the ability to actually release it into the public, never mind actually put it forward for an award. Right. Um, 
I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, and I know, like, I can't even describe it because I'll describe it, and then people will recognize what it is, and they'll be they'll be really upset because I think it was genuinely put together sincerely. Right. But there was one indie comics that described itself as like a sex positive, like action adventure comic, mm-hmm. and it was the most misogynistic mm. piece of trash that I've ever read. Right. And just executed with a shocking lack of talent on every single level. Mm -hmm. I mean, every single level. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where you actually have a moment of stepping back and being like, there are not evil people out there, Mm -hmm. but there are people out there who believe that they are uh, good and doing good things. And are just perpetuating some of the worst things in the world. Yeah, yeah, that I think I think that is true. Yeah, so there's there is a lot. I think it would be it would be kind of interesting to talk about it. But I am I am fascinated. I will say that that for me, indie comics aside, there have been stretches of Marvel comics and DC where they've published stuff where I'm just like, this is horseshit and it stayed and and some of those writers are still around some of the artists are still around it's it's kind of pretty stunning pretty stunning um i will say that for for what it is worth uh for people who want to listen and put together a list of 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 guesses there is one of the comics that we have mentioned tonight has had some of the worst art that i have seen in a professionally published big two comic ever and you can you feel free to try and guess what that was so oh you're you're now gonna have to tell me when we stop recording oh yeah definitely oh because i'm now very very curious john wheaton is our last questioner of the night and jeff he asks three questions but let's try and do this in 15 minutes because otherwise it's a three hour long podcast yeah Question one, I love and miss Comics Alliance. How did you feel about the site? Was it just economics that undid it? Or do you think something about what they offered made their fall inevitable? Uh, I'll take this. Yeah, you go. Uh, Sure, it was economics. Uh, Do you think something about what they offered made their fall inevitable? No, that's that's honestly like weird elitist craziness. No, it was a comic book website. Uh, How did I feel about it? They did some great stuff. They had a golden period. They were not in their golden period when they ended, but they still were publishing some really good work. They were publishing some really good writers, even at the time where they ended. Um, But they were also publishing some not as good writers. And at some point, they started to believe their own hype, and it was a significant downturn in the site when they did. Mm. Okay. I think that all sounds good, and I, I would agree with all of that. Uh, question two, what is the best comic book site now? CBR, Newsrama, Comicverse, Bleeding Cool. Please don't say Bleeding Cool. I love that. I love please don't say Bleeding Cool. Um, I'm going to go with the MNT or Shelf Dust. I really like what Steve Morris is doing with both sites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really good. At, I really, you should say Heat Vision, uh, HollywoodReporter.com yes. forward slash blog forward slash blog uh, forward slash blogs forward slash Heat Vision. Um, but no, probably the MNT or, or Shelf Test. Great. You, Jeff? Uh, I, I don't really cover. I, I follow Heat Vision, and the Heat Vision newsletter is a delight to read. I love reading the MNT when I do, and I, again, have fallen behind on that. Um, Bleeding Cool used to be the place where it's like if people were 
talking about something on comics Twitter, I would go to Bleeding Cool, and it used to be that that was B where I could get. Well, you'd find out. Yeah, and I feel like A that's happened less. B I've gotten tired of the number of people who I do trust who are kind of like Bleeding Cool is trash. Like they treat people, they have treated people like trash. Um, you know, and it's not just Mark Wade being like yelly. It's like people, again, people I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I trust them enough. So I'm very glad to say that I managed to quit my bleeding cool habit over the last six to nine months, but I haven't really replaced it with anything. So, which is a shame. I mean, admittedly, he's a person that I know and is, uh, is a friend, but like, I'm kind of bummed that Todd Allen isn't contributing as much to the beat because he had sort of, a uh, schism about, uh, covering like sort of the right same sort of stuff that I was interested in. I do think that the beat has some, some decent writers in there, but not really stuff that tends to hook me, especially since the sales analysis was the stuff that kept me coming back to their site and is gone. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any skin in the game. So it's pretty, pretty much heat vision and the heat vision newsletter, which is a delightful read, but also tends to be, uh, the heat vision newsletter. I mean, it's, it's tends not, to be, it's not particularly comics. Yeah. Centric, it's yeah. Right? It's yeah. It's, it's sort of more nude. I, I say that as one of the news. people who puts it together. No, 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 yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and what is the best character from the big two created since your podcast started? I feel like the, oh god, have there been characters that there must have been characters that have been created. I know you're, I know you're thinking Silencer, Jeff. <laughs> hey, Silencer was the one that I bought the first. Oh couple shit, of Kate, Casey Brink from uh, Jarrowway Zoom Patrol. Oh nice, yeah, that's actually a great. That's a that's a that's a very good choice. Um, that's probably it. I'm a big fan, as everyone knows. I'm a big fan of Spider Gwen, uh, and also Gwenpool. Um, weirdly enough, from from both of those, I'm not sure they're the best characters. They're the ones they're the ones that I like, and I just have not been paying attention. So there's probably dozens of characters where they're like, "What?" But what about I don't know, Deadpool the Duck or Duckpool or I mean, you know what I mean? Like who knows? Oh uh, God, what was the oh oh hit hit. hit Hitmonkey, Hit yes. Yeah, right? So Weirdly enough, I think Hitmonkey actually was after we went, or rather was before we started the podcast. It's quite possible. Who can tell? I mean, Hitmonkey, no, uh, 2010. Yep. So there we go. 2010. There you go. It could be Hitmonkey. Hitmonkey, it could be you. Um, <laughs> and there, must be, there, there must be others. No, I really, like, I'm sticking with Casey, but I'm, like, there must be others. Yeah. Mine was, well, I mean, uh, Miles Morales came after our, we started the podcast. Yeah, that's true. Uh, like uh, Kamal Khan was after then. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is true, too. Those I, are... I, I actually have a weird um, affection for uh, – and now the name's completely gone. Mm-hmm. Jonah Hex is Jenny Hex. Is it Jenny Hex? Yes, Jenny, Jenny Hex. Hex. Yeah, Jenny Hex. Um, like there's just something about that I find weirdly sweet. Yeah, I can I can see that. I can see that. I'm – I uh, – I have to say i'm sure there's other stuff i'm kind of shocked we didn't say like say damian wayne you know which i think was... he was before was he yeah damian wayne's like 2006 or something because that was uh just that was morrison's first arc oh yeah you're right yeah, yeah, yeah. Christ. so it would be right. 2006 2007 yeah yeah okay so so yeah there you go 
Uh, and Jonathan Kent. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, no, I mean, seriously, I think, let's, let's give it up for the spectacular character find of uh, 2016, Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> I thought you were going to say jor like, man, I got to tell you, <laughs> right. Oh, man, I read. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh. We're, we're like, we're not going to go there because this is almost three hours already. Yes. But I will say this. This week's issue of Batman, I feel, has honestly been created uh, to irritate fans like you. Uh, the one that's upcoming? The one that's upcoming. Okay. Because you say this week, I'm, you know. Uh, yes, I believe that's probably the case, Graham, because I have to say the previous issue of Batman, which was a let me explain it all and seem like this was all one big master plan, was really bad i have to say uh, you're, not... you're th- no really the next issue i feel that you might end up throwing it across the room yeah that's the great thing about the ipad you just don't want to hurt it but yeah i believe <laughs> it that last issue was re- it was really it took all my willpower to not go online on twitter and just type you know batman 69 is trash or whatever issue it was it was that that was that was it's and you know the thing is is I gotta say the art was beautiful. Oh my god, the art looks so good in that even as the Tom King script was just so terrible. Like and then you figured you could throw him into another dimension, a dimension where perhaps it was you who operated on skeets that then manipulated Booster to make him go to a place where he realized and then you would knew that he would tell Selena, which would reawaken the idea that she would have to do a thing with a thing and that but that wasn't enough. Like literally, like I'm like man, you know Oh no, no, no. You have no idea. Oh. You have no idea. When we start recording, I will tell you what it oh, is. Oh, God. You will, you will melt down, Jeff. No, no. Oh, no. You, like, you're not ready. You're not prepared to talk. <laughs> well, that's great. I look forward to And on to that it. bombshell, everyone. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. The 10-year anniversary of Wait What trundles on as we will have a drock for you next week. I pray to I God we will. I'm... Have, have, have you have you been reading the the? I'm I'm barely into it. I just got through like the first. I don't know. I want to say like sixty pages. Like the whole opening, like mega crime uh, set of interrelated stories. Um, Jeff, like that book, and I say this as someone who has read this volume before, and someone who like has read uh, been reading like Drog to this point, etc., mm-hmm. etc. That book blew my mind. I believe it because it – this whole strong, depressing start is like – it is – it's brilliant and it's dark, this opening with the – the is it the Mega Rackets? Is that, is that yeah, what it's yeah, called? Yeah. The Mega Rackets is so ridiculously despairing. It's like I there's a little bit of funny, but it is so bleak to me. And I can only imagine what's coming after this. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's just like, it really is just like, you fuckers were just every single story in this volume Mm -hmm. is a classic. Every fucking single story. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's nuts. So, yeah, that's next week. Next week we're doing a draw, and I'm just going to be in awe for the entire time. I'm just warning you right now, everyone, that that's going to be a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. 
Uh, I should probably tell you right now that there's going to be show notes uh, mm-hmm. for this episode at weightbotpodcast.com and also that we are going to be uh, once again when I am not sweltering in the heat, there will be stuff on the Tumblr at com. There is continually stuff on the Instagram every weekday instagram.com forward slash weightwattpods and we are on Twitter at weightwattpodcast. Jeff is on Twitter solo at lazybastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D I am on Twitter solo at Graham M at G R A E M E M. And we are a Patreon supported podcast, which gives Jeff the chance to shuffle out in front of the stage, put his hat in his hand, the spotlight comes on him, he coughs a little, and then he says, He says, You know what's great is I had actually planned to make my thanking of the patrons on patreon super short since we are so squeezed for time i cannot believe that i thought that even as graham was literally dragging out his introduction to the nth degree short short come on get through oh sure i'm the one who gets to be short and then you can go back to describing then jeff plaintively looks back and he goes <laughs> i remember founders corners or whatever the fucking place is in our town anyway listeners you guys are the best uh i really am going to keep this short more because i feel that it would be gen it's it's more generous and thoughtful and considerate to you guys considering yeah this is going to be a long one but we enjoyed everyone's questions we enjoy uh, interacting with you we actually enjoy interacting with each other because we've been doing it now for like 10 years and um we're so glad to have your support on that because i don't know it just manages to to keep everything fresh and interesting and there are a few years there where i was a little worried that graham would not have uh have kept talking to me if it wasn't for the larger commitment of the work but now now i feel like he's really seriously like he's hooked yeah honestly no offense graham it's not it's not a judgment on you it's very much my own insecurity about myself i'm like i'm well i'm just gonna tell you right now not true well i appreciate that i really do so that 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 does it means a lot to me but i definitely had some years where i was like um we really want to thank the people on patreon for being so incredibly supportive and generous uh Throwing us a little bit of uh, dosh to to keep us uh, motivated, especially so when we, you know, 10 years ago built our Patreon site and made all sorts of extravagant promises that we have been sort of semi-terrible about keeping over the years. But um, but we're doing our best. God help you. We're doing our best. Drock exists precisely because of the support of patrons on Patreon, uh, as did the 50 episodes of the Baxter Building. I uh, We continue to give you quality content, as the kids say, um, even if it does tend to run a little bit on the longish side. Finally, before I hand this back to Graham, who sits there ruminating, fingers rolling through his beard, eyes staring at the wall, feeling perhaps the slightest tremor of exhaustion and wondering whether or not it was a mistake for him to spend so long introducing Jeff and if this is some form of passive-aggressive payback coming back his way. Before I do that, I do want to thank Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for her continuing support of this podcast. American Ninth Art Studios uh, supported us 
through a, a good chunk of time and we're incredibly grateful, but we really are genuinely super grateful to all of our supporters on Patreon and all of our listeners. Thank you so much. It allows me to pass ag Graham, even at this late hour. Graham? Here's the thing, Jeff. If you were really serious about pass agging me, mm-hmm. you would have kept, like, you would have done that, you know, ruminating, gone into Empress Audrey, and then come back out and done another lengthy <laughs> pass And you didn't. So all I can say is, it's like, I'm hurt you didn't even try. Oh! Oh, see, <laughs> that's how you pass ag, ladies and gentlemen. There's no, there's no doubt. I am totally going to be the loser in this sort of horrific amok time style showdown between the two of us. Ah, uh, well, so Graham, uh, did you want to sing us out, or do you just want to I, pass I, ag oh me God, some it'd more? Be so funny. It'd be so funny. I just went. Goodbye. <laughs> I just left that. Bye. <laughs>